I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Gross Point Blank. I can see clearly now the rain is gone. I can see all obstacles in my way. This is a commissioned show for Greg Downing. Since I saw it at the cinema in 1997, the same year I started going to watch films alone, this has been one of my favourites of all time, occupying the top spot until late 2001 when The Fellowship of the Ring came along. I'm not even sure right about now which is the top spot. Either way, they're both pretty damn high still. That being the case, and considering you all know how much time we spent on Lord of the Rings, I have been waiting and putting off covering Gross Point Blank for years, hoping that it would be rediscovered and hit the public consciousness the way that A Christmas Story did thanks to Ted Turner, or B-Movie did thanks to memes and YouTube editing experiments, or the Kate Bush song Running Up That Hill thanks to Stranger Things. It never happened, though thankfully you can catch this permanently obscure black comedy action thriller in the adult section of Disney Plus or Hulu, depending on territory, and you can feel its influence in films like Deadpool, as Ryan Reynolds is apparently a big fan of this one. It is classified as a cult classic. Indeed. Cult just means that we no didn't... No one saw it. No one saw it, but the few who did really, really love it. Really love it. They will go to bat for it on a regular basis. Does that make this a cult podcast? I think it does. It does, yeah. Well done. Never thought I'd be running a cult, but uh, <laughs> I am your saviour. Don't tell him that. This film <laughs> has the perfect soundtrack. You know how often I don't like the word, the P word, how often I point that out? I'm using it now. It has the perfect soundtrack for what it is attempting. Set in 1997, it has late 20-somethings returning to their well-to-do Gross Point, Michigan high school for a 10-year reunion, and the music is largely an authentic, eclectic mix of British ska, reggae-inspired, post-punk, dub-funk, and rockabilly. The Clash, the Jam, the Specials, the English Beat, and a smattering of pop hits for the wider crowd. Yes. Technically, it's set in 1996. Okay, fine. So, well, how did you know? Because the invitation is uh, class of 86. Ah, of course. Reunion, and it's 10 years. Sorry. Absolutely correct. That was I Can See Clearly Now by Johnny Nash. Next up, we got Blister in the Sun by the Violent Femmes. not the sound of Gross Point, either in 86 or in 96. It is the sound from specific... Sorry, our dog's going nuts. He's looking at us like we should be paying attention to him. <laughs> Down, Boudreaux. You chose to come in here when we were working, dude. <sighs> it is not the sound of Gross Point, either in 86 or 96. It is the sound from specific teenagers' bedrooms after they sought out a specific style curated in this case by Joe Strummer of The Clash, sadly missed, who composed the moody, nervous, yet energetic score for this film. 
And between recording this and editing it, Terry Hall, the lead singer of The Specials, also died at the age of 63. So it's an honor to showcase their music. And those songs are played over the local radio in World by DJ Debbie Newberry as the reunion sends her back mentally, because she never left the town, to that point of breakage and arrested evolution in her life. To that end, this episode will be a Sound of Gonzo, playing you the deep cuts as we go, not just from the soundtrack CD or the second released assortment, but also songs that didn't make either official release, because I've had my own curated mix for over 10 years now. 10 years, man! Nearly over 20 years. It is one of my all-time favorites, much like the film. And the reason that the film is one of my all-time favorites is in no small part due to the soundtrack. Hi, I'm Debbie Newberry. This is WGPM-FM Gross Point, Window on Points. You heard from Massive Attack, Public Enemy, Morphine, my personal favorite, and Dwayne Eddy's twangy guitar. Good to hear Toots and the Maytels, huh? And as you know, this weekend is Points High Class of 86 reunion. So in honor of this momentous event, I'm making this an all-80s, all-vinyl weekend. Stay tuned to Window on the Points, and I'll keep you posted on all this reunion-related nonsense. Hey, I know everybody's coming back to take stock of their lives. You know what I say? Leave your livestock alone. Kick back and relax and ponder this. Where are all the good men dead? In the heart or in the head? So here's another cold cup of coffee from The Clash. of the story is John Cusack's Martin Q. Blank, a hitman who is losing his taste for his career and has been thinking more and more often these days in the mid-90s of his high school sweetheart Debbie Newberry, played by Minnie Driver, who is his biggest reason to return to what feels like an enormous trap of a reunion, both physical and emotional. It is extremely Generation X. Ruminating on this concept as I penned my notes, I began to realize the mode of mark that the generation I still have one foot in, being born in 1980, put into effect on the world of cinema. We are talking reality bites, flirting with disaster, slacker, before sunrise, clerks. It's an age group and a culture more known for loving movies than it is for making them. Spielberg, Scorsese, De Palma, Lucas, Coppola, Polanski, the celebrated greats were boomers, or even a little earlier. 
Gen X is more known for serving the boomers who made the movies beloved to Gen X at the theater concession stand, at the desk at Blockbuster Video. Unarguably, one of our most famed and riffed upon directors is Quentin Tarantino, who literally worked at a video store just like Kevin Smith and drew all his inspirations from his own yesterday. Because he didn't like the films that were coming out then, he liked the films that were came out in the 70s. And yet, when I see what feels like a perfect script in chaotic, harmonized action here in Gross Point Blank, I think of Billy Wilder and his work on The Apartment, Sunset Boulevard, Some Like It Hot, that razor-sharp back and forth with equally perfect delivery forming the skeleton of this film. But my assumptions were challenged in terms of this being a single tight stack of paper that everybody involved with loved. Let me read you some revealing material from the production notes. So, screenwriter Tom Jankowitz wrote the initial script for Gross Point Blank in 1991, five years before the film is set, after receiving an invitation to his 10-year high school reunion. He picked the title while substitute teaching for an English class at Upland High School, writing the title on the classroom's whiteboard to see how it would look on a movie theater marquee. Jankowitz decided to use Gross Point, an upscale suburb of Detroit, Michigan, rather than his working-class hometown of Sterling Heights, due to the contrast between the two towns. There is also the wordplay point blank, please don't explain your puns, sir, which is a ballistic term of reference to the distance a bullet travels before dropping from the firearm's bore axis. That was Rudy Can't Fail by The Clash. Next up by popular demand, Armageddon Time again by The Clash. Get no supper tonight. A lot of people won't get no justice tonight. And the battle is getting hard in this Irish Armageddon time. Jankowitz simultaneously worked as a substitute teacher and a cashier at a Big lots in Upland, California, to make ends meet before his. So he, his self-insert character is that guy who works in the Ultimate. Yep. <laughs> Uh, to make ends meet before his script was picked up for production. Jankowitz, who was raised in Sterling Heights, based several of the film's characters on his real-life friends from Bishop Foley Catholic High School in Madison Heights, Michigan. For example, Jeremy Piven's character, Paul Sparecki, was originally named after Jankowitz's best friend during high school, although the name was changed during filming. The film's script... I did that too. My, uh, in my The first book I ever wrote, the uh, best friend of the, the... The new best friend of the hero was based very heavily on my my uh, good friend Matt at the time. The film's script was based on an urban legend about a student who became a professional hitman. Joan Cusack's character Marcella was named for Jankowitz's manager at Big Lots. George Armitage, the director of this film, who you won't have heard of any of his other stuff, said, I did as much as anyone did in terms of writing, but did not seek credit. The script when I met with John Cusack and the writers was 132 pages. Remember, folks, one page per minute of the screenplay. So that was going to be like two hours and 12 minutes. And I said, look, I am not doing anything over 100 pages. And they said, OK. And they did a rewrite and they came back with 150 pages. So I said, OK, you guys are fucking fired. 
and I spent most of the pre-production rewriting the screenplay, getting it down to 102 pages. Then we would improvise, and I noticed that some of the stuff that I'd cut out was in the improvs. They were bringing back stuff that I'd cut out, but we had a good time with it. See, this is great. It means that the character, the actors playing the characters looked for extra background in the longer scripts. But that also makes this feel more like Iron Man, which has that kind of riffing, overlapping, witty, back and forth dialogue in it. It's, it, it fits well with, uh, of course, John Favreau is another one of those Gen X filmmakers. Only the aerial footage of Lakeshore Drive, which is a song in Guardians 2 from one of those other Gen X filmmakers, James Gunn, was actually shot in Gross Point. The city of Gross Point Farms did not allow the filmmakers to use any shots of Gross Point South High School for the movie due to the presence of alcohol in the reunion scenes. You're serving alcohol to adults. What's next? That... Hmm. Seems weirdly puritanical. No, that may be why then the sign on the school on the outside says Points High School. Right. And I wondered why it was Points when the town is Point. Welcome back, Pointers. That aerial shot, by the way, is incredibly crucial for setting up a sense of place because you pan in from Detroit. Yeah. But it, it really gives you that sense of place as the soundtrack gives you a sense of time. Mm. Yeah. So come on back to the old oak tree acorns. Signs, Points High School Reunion. You're fired. Don't ever read that to me again, ever. Don't hang up. Wait, did you read yesterday's offer? Hold on a minute. It's in French. It's a Greenpeace boat. It'd be so easy. No way. I have scruples. Listen, uh, is everything set uh, for my arrival in Miami? It's covered, sir. Good, good, good. Sir, are you all right? You don't seem like... Well, your old self lately. If you don't mind my asking, sir, is it the job? Is it getting to you? You know, when you start getting invited to your 10-year high school reunion, time is catching up. Are you talking about a sense of my own mortality or a fear of death? Well, I never really thought about it quite like that. Did you go to yours? Yes, I did. It was just as if everyone had swelled. Why are you so interested in me going to my reunion? I just find it amusing that you came from somewhere. Bye. Taking a little break from all these oldies for you now, here's something brand new, Eels, with Your Lucky Day in Hell, from their 1996 debut album, Beautiful Freak. Still 
1997 interview, actor John Cusack, who shares the film's screenwriting credit along with Jankowicz, Steve Pink, and D.V. Divicentis, said that he would have liked the f- to film on location in Gross Point, but they were unable to move production to Michigan due to budget constraints. That's it's amazing what they couldn't do in Michigan due to budget constraints in that era. Yeah. The scene where Martin is attacked by Felix Lapubel while exploring the halls of his old high school was filmed at Reseda High School in the San Fernando Valley, so that's... That's where uh, Licorice Pizza is set. It's in California, Armitage later recalled. With Gross Point Blank, I shot three movies simultaneously, said Armitage. We shot the script as written, we shot a mildly understated version, and we shot a completely over-the-top version, which usually was the one that we used. That explains a lot. We cast that movie, and I've cast most movies, by having the actors come in and read and then throwing the script out and saying, okay, let's just improvise. That's what I was comfortable with. I said to the actors, you are creating the character. This is written. These are the parameters of the outline. Now you take this, make it your own, and bring me, bring me, bring me. I am very fond of Gross Point Blank because of that. The insanity of it was trying to keep things working with three different registers to choose from. He sounds very technical and a very much an actor-focused director, mm. but also kind of no-nonsense, which is kind of crazy for a film that is full of so much playfulness. Yeah, well, it, it, it sounds like he's one of those we'll find it in the edit kind of directors. Fuck it, we'll do it live! No, 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 just in the sense that they want as much material to work with as they can, yeah. rather than having a very very fixed idea in their head going in, hmm. this is what it's going to be like and I will drive everybody into the ground to get it. Most films are not edited in live action. Well, it's a terrible strain on the editor's wrist. As, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Armitage says he shot several different endings. I'm usually rather rough on studio heads in terms of creative help, but after seeing the audience so angry at Alec Baldwin dying in Miami Blues, which was the film he did before this, I decided that on Gross Point Blank, this time dealing with another psychopath, another sociopath, John's character, I just wanted him to survive, and we shot so many different endings. They were, they were so generous at Disney, this is a... <laughs> what? They were! <laughs> they were so generous at Disney, for your given Disney, well, we had Michael Ovitz and Joe Roth running the place, and they were really great with us. We shot two or three different endings, and two of them getting uh, uh, the two of them getting together, talking about things, and everything didn't work. And Joe Roth said at one of the screenings, when the father said, "When the father says you've got my blessing in the bathtub at the end after the shootout, just cut to the two of them leaving." I thought, let's give it a shot, and it worked beautifully, and it does. Now, normally, as I've said repeatedly in the past, I do not like films that have scripts with question mark at the end because they don't know quite how to end this but since the idea was he's got to live it became a case of how do we best show in a pithy way he lives like the ending was always the same it's just how to get to that ending as opposed to rogue takes the cure or rogue doesn't take the cure we'll see which one the test audience likes best and that's our theme for this film fuck you i think with this a huge part of it is that everything in it that is plot related is actually based very heavily in character this is one of the reasons why it's also one of my favorite films of all time thank you very much for sharing it with me because i hadn't seen it before that that's how i knew i found someone really special the fact that I can quote it pretty much from beginning to end. We can is, go back uh, and forth on it. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> the whole theme of Martin's life leading up to that end point is about control and routine. And you get away from that completely by giving a very loose he's in a car, on a road, it's travelling. We know she's with him, but that is all we know. What happens after this? Mm 
is entirely up to him. And that is such a happy ending for me. Yeah. Death. On January 23rd, 2013, screenwriter Tom Jankowitz attended his screening of Gross Point Blank, held at his brother's alma mater, California State University, San Bernardino, at the invitation of Professor James C. Kaufman. Kaufman called him that morning to invite him to attend the class that evening. The screening was attended by approximately 75 students of Kaufman's psychology and movies. Jankowitz collapsed during a question-and-answer session held after the film. He was rushed to community hospital at San Bernardino, where he was pronounced dead at 10.51 at the age of 49. He was a resident of Upland, California. My God. Which, of course, gives this a tinge of pathos, sadness. Yeah. The, the, the real experience is that this kind of stems from one particular guy, and then everyone who came in to film brought their own. Mm. But it, it feels... It's sad that that link has passed away, and 49 is a ridiculous age. That is no age. That's five years older than me. Mm. Mrs. K. Miss Canetta. It's Martin. Martin, my God! It's you! Hey. Oh, God! You've been Detroit's most famous disappearing act since White Flying. You look exactly the same, Mrs. K. Well, I'm, you look great, is what I mean. You oh, look thank great. you. Thank you very much, Martin. You have always been very good at saying that, not sounding like a kiss ass. <laughs> so, what happened? I mean, we, we thought Princeton, Harvard, you fooled us all in the teacher's pool and went nowhere. I guess you could say I went west, oh. you know, the way of Horatio Alger, Davy Crockett, the Donner oh, yeah. Party. Oh, thank you, thank you. That's a, a barrage of imagery. <laughs> Are you still, um, you know, inflicting all that horrible Ethan Frome damage? Is that off the curriculum? It's off the curriculum now. It's oh, a horrible book. It's a very nice tie you have on. Oh. You yeah. look like uh, a mortician. I mean. You like it? Yeah, thanks. So you still I got, got that whole Mary Tyler Moore thing. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That's enough. Uh-huh. All right. Good to see you again. Yeah, good to see you. Where, where are you off to? I'm, uh, I'm going home. Are you? Gosh, well, all right, right. they're playing my song. Take care, Martin. It's nice to see you again. This is Ken, you were young and your heart was an open book. You used to say, live and let live. But if this ever changing world in which we live in makes you give in and cry, say, live and let So this film, I think it would be accurate to say, is shot in the key of discomfort. Yes. It is like it is a film that is not very uncomfortable in how it is, but everyone in the film goes through a series of discomforting episodes, and it's kind of the secret to the the film. It feels very human because everyone's just muddling through. The nature of high school reunions is to come back and kind of. In Debbie's words, take stock of your lives, but a lot of the time there's a kind of a competitive streak where it's like everyone's projecting their representative and trying to uh, deliver a CV of their own successes in the uh, past decade so that they can, they, they can look their former friends, acquaintances, classmates, enemies in the eye and say, I have somehow gotten through life well. Yeah. It is a very 
pre Facebook, mm. pre Instagram, friends reunited, pre friends reunited kind of uh, activity. Um, there's a quote from Paul later on that I have. This this was literally the first time I've ever heard it, and I've seen this film how many times? When he refers to it as the "I've peaked and I'm kidding myself" party. <laughs> So we begin uh, the film with uh, Hitman Martin Blank in his version of an uncomfortable normal, which to us is entirely abnormal. He's uh, putting together a sniper rifle and in a clear kind of day of the jackals, sort of he's up in the hotel room about to shoot. It's broad daylight in the afternoon. He's about to shoot across the street. Rich looking guy is emerging from a hotel's ground floor on the street below. And then a cyclist comes by, uh, pulls out an Ingram's machine pistol and is about to just spray this guy with lead when Blank shoots him. So it's not exactly a save the cat moment, but it does at least put a question mark above the, like he's a hitman doing bad things and killing uh, people who might in fact just be innocent. In this case, the guy holding a machine gun looks like he may be very uh, uh, bad as a person. We don't know the context for this, but we Martin... Don't, but that's that's part of the point of Martin's character. We don't know much of the context of what he does, and he is continually trying to reflect back to himself his own context. Yeah. And um, two of the things that I love about this scene is that, first of all, later in the movie, somebody refers to him as an Oswald. He opens the movie, high up with a sniper rifle doing exactly what they are about to accuse him of doing and, and make him be. The second thing is that the back and forth that he has with Marcella at this point, as he's setting up his rifle, getting his position, taking out his target, he is on the phone with his assistant who is trying to place an ammo order for him um, and this involves him having to tell her what he needs her to uh, request from the retailer and give her details for transferring some money over and it's just the the efficiency and the smoothness of, of the way he does this it just goes to uh, to set this up as this is his routine mm -hmm. the fact that he can rattle off his account numbers without even thinking about it while he's in the process of being about to shoot somebody it all goes to emphasize how normal how standard how Mechanically like I said, efficient. Routine and efficient, mm. this all is for him. It's it's also it's dehumanizing and it feels like Marcelo is his assistant uh, is a little bit of a uh, like he's holding on to her as a connection to humanity yes. because uh, one of Martin's abiding uh, fears, even though he never really voices this, is that he's never he's completely detached from humanity. He's disconnected, absolutely. And there's lots of things that we will talk about as we go through that show this. But yeah, keeping Marcella there is like is like his one hand on the, his his finger on the shore mm. of the sea that he is about to drift away into. And the fact that she's played by his real-life sister Joan. just goes to underpin that. Yeah. Who, I mean, arguably Joan Cusack's as famous, if not more uh, famous, a face and voice in Hollywood as uh, John. I love Absolutely. the fact that these two have succeeded. Also keep an eye out for Anne Cusack as Amy later yes. on. She is, uh, Joan Cusack is also as funny, if not more so, than Joan oh, yeah. Cusack. Malibu Barbie. <laughs> the woman is a genius of comedy and I love her. Sir, they're very unhappy. I'm very unhappy. He was supposed to look like a heart attack. He was supposed to die in his sleep. Well, he moved. His sleep research pattern suggested deep sleep at that hour. There's nothing to be done about it. Sir, this is a very valuable firm. Come here. We've done a lot of business with them over the years, and they blame you for the snafu. They say you've got to make amends. When? 
a canary decided to sing. They scheduled his deposition for early Monday morning. You've got to do it this weekend. This weekend? No, impossible. Tell them I need my normal lead time. Where? I'm getting a black cat Friday the 13th kind of feeling about this one. It's in Detroit. You can take care of business and stop by Gross Point for your reading. Hey, look, Sergeant Pepper, I really need you to shut up about Sir, that. It's out of my hands. The gods want you to go back home and they want you to delete someone while you're there. Would you describe their position on this matter as inflexible? Intractable, sir. I've booked you on an early flight tomorrow morning. You heard from Guns N' Roses in their cover of Wings Live and Let Die there? In some kind of karaoke elevator Muzak version which must have snuck its way into my CD collection from the cover of a magazine or something. Next up we have The Jam with Absolute Beginners, not to be confused with the David Bowie song of the same name. He is an assassin's assassin, assassinating an assassin to prevent an assassination, but he is not able to prevent Grosser's assassination of the guy who he just saved from being assassinated, which is a completely different job, and it comes out of nowhere. Grosser, dressed as a bellboy, played by Dan Aykroyd, pulls out two magnums and blows this guy and his entourage, his retinue of uh, bodyguards away, just while Martin stares in disbelief as a kind of a, oh, that's that's not what's supposed to happen at all. So the job is effectively bungled, and we can officially say that Martin is somewhat distracted. He's definitely tried to give the bare minimum for his job. He's like, took out the cyclist, and then he does not continue to stare through the sniper scope in a kind of a, you know, I'm gonna make sure that this situation it dies down before I then leave. He's just, he's putting away the rifle already. Like, he's done his thing. Everything on the dossier has been done. But that's the thing, it makes it very clear how compartmentalized and detached his role in this world is. His job was not to protect the guy who ultimately ended up getting killed. Mm. His job was simply to take out I was paid for one guy, the cyclist. That they knew was after him. Yeah. The fact that they didn't know about the other guy is, in Martin's words, not his problem yeah. or not his fault. It's, it's not me. Mm. Come, uh, oh, put, put a pin, put a pin in it's a not me. Big old pin in it's not me. I'm gonna, I think I'm going to get to the whole it's not me thing near the end yes. at the epiphany Shokabuku stage because yeah. that is the, the, the soul of this film. So we'll build up to that, but uh, yeah. Uh, then Martin meets with Grocer, who is a rival, old war buddy, someone that he feels... They've clearly, they've worked together at some point in the past, and Grocer is expressing including a, Budapest. interest in doing it again. You and I remember Budapest very differently. <laughs> the way that they meet, I just, I love this. The physical performance from the two of them. They approach shoulder to shoulder. Both of them are kind of like playing with the Feeling edges of their jacket for their so guns. they can reach for their gun if given a moment's notice. It's, the, is is the he fact, going to try to shoot me? The fact that so much of this um, is about how Martin's feeling disconnected from everybody. He has no friends. He doesn't really have any associates apart from Marcella. He explains why he thinks the reason for this is later on, but ultimately, Grocer is the closest thing he has to a, a work colleague, and they don't trust each other in the slightest. This is just the, the wariness that is just a part of 
everybody working in their rarefied profession, mm. as he refers to it, really underpins that he is lonely. And there's also an intergenerational kind of disapproval thing going on with the whole, hey, if you want a debt father, I'll give you a spanking. He wants a gang of them to be working together and sharing information and, and supporting each to other. To make sure that you don't get of. hits that uh, kind of intersect, like yeah. we've just borne witness yeah. to, one cancelled out the other. But just because of the way that Grosser speaks and, and acts mm. and, and behaves towards Martin, it makes it pretty clear that his motivations in wanting to do this may not be entirely altruistic. Yeah. <laughs> Grocer is definitely in the boomer era, yes. and Martin is just at the very beginning of Gen X. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, it, it, officially, Gen Xers is anybody born after the mid-60s. Mm. He was born in 66, and the official time is 65. Okay. Martin is the exact right age to have been a teenager watching Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, Bill Murray, Eddie Murphy, Steve Martin, Chevy Chase, John Lovitz, Martin Short, Phil Hartman, revolutionized comedy by boomers for Gen Xers on Saturday Night Live. Grosser kind of acts as like, because Martin's own father is entirely absent, we don't hear anything about him, has died in the interim while uh, Martin's been away from Detroit and he is so disconnected from everyone else, Grocer is kind of the disapproving father figure of you aren't making enough of yourself, come and work for me in our family business. But without any kind of warmth, it's more of a kind of a, listen, you'll work for me so that I know when to put a cap in you, I'll know where, where you are, I won't be worried that you'll be snaking Detroit jobs from under me, which he immediately then does. Absolutely. Not on purpose, just by accident. Yeah, Ultimately, and, that's and also, what the union is there to prevent. The one word that they never use when they're discussing the situation is cooperative. The idea that they're all putting in and, and sort of taking equal shares in this. Chances are at some point, Gross is going to start wanting 10% of everybody. But that's the thing, okay. Martin doesn't want to work with loads of people like him. Mm, no, he doesn't. Because he needs to set the parameters for who he is. If he's with other people who are setting their own parameters, he has to abide by that. And if he, Gross is in charge, it's Psycho Club. Yeah, and in particular, the fact that he has, he doesn't realize this immediately, but there is something within him that is starting to realize, I don't want to do this anymore. Mm -hmm. He needs to be able to drop everything and walk away with a moment's notice. Yeah, and you can't do that. When I mean, he we've comes seen, around the corner. We've seen many, many films illustrating that you don't just go, thank you, I'll retire now. Indeed, yes. Yeah. Kid, I'm putting together a little concern, which would uh, enable those of us in our rarefied profession to avoid uh, embarrassing overlaps. What, like a union? Yeah, more like a club. Work less, make more. That's a great idea, but um, thank you, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Remember Burma? Yeah, I do. That nut General Quang. You were like a colonel in that army or something, right? Yeah. <laughs> you sold you all those tanks and shipped them to Alabama? Yeah, T-34s, I took a bath on that. Yeah, that was fun. That's what I'm talking about, kid. We could be working together again, for God's sake. You know, making big money, killing important people. I want to structure an arrangement where you get, like, you know, shares, original shares in the ground floor. And you would be the president of this organization, or maybe just a father figure to me. Hey, if you want a father, I'll give you a spanking. Yeah, forget about it. Look, the employers are getting us a lot cheaper, because yeah. there's so many more of us. Well, after the Berlin thing, what can you do? Soviet bloc collapse. Yeah, the market's right. flooded. Okay, that's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at consolidated bargaining, okay? Mm. Look, I don't want to play against you. This thing is real. How real? Moranga brothers, uh, them uh, East German ecstasy guys. Oh, I don't like those guys. Them uh, butch Filipino ladies. The little, uh, the dwarf uh, made the... Stabbers. Queens at a hotel hip, you know. You got a great crew. Everybody's in. Yeah, well, not me, so don't paw at me with your dirty little guild. 
All right, well, you know, life's full of second chances. And uh, here's chance two for you. You think about coming in with me. Yeah. You ponder, okay? I'll think about it. Because either way, I'm gonna get you, kid. Yeah, get what? Get back. <laughs> bing, 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 bang. Popcorn. Yeah, whatever. Nice to see you again. Yeah, good to see you too, buddy. You like that Pacific Northwest country, all the mist and that up there? Haven't been there in years. <laughs> Catch you. Yeah, you look great. Nice to see you again. <laughs> Drive safe. And then he uh, gets uh, off to Miami to do another job, which he again bungles because he's distracted. It's, uh, uh, it's that the ninja way of trying to kill 007 from You Only Live Twice, where they sort of pour the poison down a little bit of string. In that film, uh, Sean Connery has been disguised as a Japanese man, because they did that in those days. And he rolls over, and his new wife, because he was supposed to take a bride for this particular job, uh, rolls over and puts her mouth directly under the poison string and thus takes the poison bullet for him. And then 007 has a fight with a ninja. Yeah. But I suppose it's it's just a classic cinematic, that's not how you pull off a hit, it's too imprecise. It's too imprecise, it's too complicated, but very specifically, this contrast, there's, there's so much of this throughout this film, by the way, where you have something that is either said or shown or done, and then you have something following it up which echoes it or mirrors it in some way. Yeah. And this is the, the, the uh, elaborate nature of this hit that he has set up in Miami is a direct counterpoint from the conversation that he has just had with Marcella where she has tried to offer him a job, a hit, on a Greenpeace boat. It'll be so easy. And she says it will be so easy. Because now, Greenpeace says, are peaceful and would never think about being attacked and how the hell to repel well, that. just the fact that it's a boat, you've got a lot of people in one um, oh, small yeah. space. Uh, that, you know, just stick a bomb on it and you can take out a large number of people. You've thought about boat. this before. Poor um, Greenpeace. But... Um, <laughs> Not no way. She has scruples. <laughs> um, but, but part of it, again, is to characterise Martin as somebody who does have a line, who does have parameters, in spite of the fact that he repeatedly refers to um, other people making the decisions for him and therefore they are not his responsibility, he does ultimately have one choice and that is whether he accepts certain jobs or not. There's only a couple of occasions, um, one of which is, is to set up plot, uh, where he has to do a job that he really would prefer not to do. Yeah, um, he's coerced and forced into the Detroit job because he bungles this one. Yeah, but as well as the whole, the, the moral line of no, no, I don't want to do a hit on a Greenpeace boat. There is also the fact that it would be too easy. He is bored. He's, I think part of why he sets up this Miami hit to be so complicated is because he wants something interesting to happen. He deliberately picked a, uh, a, a style from a movie that goes wrong. Mm, absolutely. And even a ninja couldn't pull it off, and it was just one ninja. Absolutely. Inverse law of ninja suggests... And they're supposed to be really good. Yeah. You can't come in. Yeah, 
That was The Killing Moon by Echo and the Bunny Men, used to better effect in the beginning of the theatrical cut of Donnie Darko. Though it's notable that Richard Kelly envisioned that scene in the director's cut with In Excess Never Tear Us Apart, which is less effective. And if you look at the lyrics of The Killing Moon, it has relevance to both Donnie Darko and Gross Point Blank. An anxiety-ridden Gen Xer feels like they're being trammeled into something they don't want to do, which is going to consume their life. Fate up against your will. Next up we have The Specials doing one of their songs. the back and forth between him and Marcella it's so there is a sibling nature to it that is so charming and it, it just this sort of she's checking in with him she knows he's not going to tell her anything but he, she can also tell that something's not quite right mm. also she's happy. nervous of him everyone yeah, who everyone talks to Martin, Martin and knows what he does for a living a is in fact of nervous of yeah, him yeah absolutely there is in fact there's a bit later on when he's asked her to take down the office and she's throwing gasoline everywhere mm. while smoking so that the whole <laughs> audience will go oh my god what the hell are you doing woman he says, check under the desk, and she says, why? In a kind of a, please say you haven't put a bomb under there so you can dispose of me quickly and tie away all the loose ends. No, 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 it's when he says, I'll find you. And she's yeah. like, ugh. And he goes, no, 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 not like that. Yeah. And then she checks under the desk, and it's a giant wad of cash, which has been there clearly for a long time. Mm. And she's just, she's happy, and that's the end of Marcella's uh, side of the story. He just gave her a, a sweet farewell as opposed to... You know, you uh, you know too much, kaboom. Yeah, and also, by the way, that money stashed way back at the back of the desk mm-hmm. is the echo of him finding the joint in the back of his locker that he oh, left there in high school. Nice. He prepares, he plans ahead. Well ahead. Yes. Um, but yeah, this is where she tells him about But the, this also suggests uh, he knew he was going to be retired. Oh, absolutely, yeah. He knew that was coming. Um, but the this is where she tells him about the letter... Um, or elaborates on the letter with the um, high school reunion and, and sort of tells him. You're fired. Don't ever read that to me again, ever. <laughs> and and what's, what is it she says? He's like, why are you so invested in me going to this? And she's I like... I just find it amusing that you came from somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> so clearly she doesn't know much about him personally. Uh, but she... While it's not clear that she particularly wants to, she does relate to him as a person. She wants to claw at things that will tell her he is a human being. He was described in uh, one of the uh, reviews as seductively malevolent, which is not undue. I don't think that's necessarily the energy I'd say came, comes exuding off him. Again, I'd say it's discomfort, but at the same time, a certain measure of eagerness to grab something that he left behind a long time ago. That is almost completely the opposite way to how I would describe him. He's not seductive. He's a complete nerd. Um, From before it was okay to be a nerd. I find that charming. What can I say? That's my type. But I wouldn't... He's not suave. He's not... I mean, he he can kind of pull it off with the people that he does connect with. But you can tell that's because he's got a long-standing connection with those people. He is suave relative to most of the denizens of Gross Point, Michigan, though. They are very simple, straightforward people. A rock is suave compared to most of the denizens of Gross Point, Michigan, as presented in this movie. Well, that's not technically an omelette. (laughs) 
whatever it is I'm doing that you don't like, I'll stop doing it. It's not me. This is one of the reasons, this and Pulp Fiction were, were two major films for me where I was like, right, script, that's really important in film. And I've always held to that. I became a writer with that love of, of back and forth dialogue. And yeah, very specifically, it script in terms of the interactions between your, pe your the people in your film are what reveals character, location, plot, Everything that happens can be conveyed in what your your characters say to each other. But you have to be very careful for that not to become exposition dump after exposition dump. Days to Confuse, Swingers, Before Sunset, these are Generation X films where by boomer standards these young people are way too giving and transparent Absolutely. with each other. Nothing happens. All they do is talk to each other. Yes, that's what happens. <laughs> do you know why? Because we grew up in an era where everyone was actively discouraged from talking to each other. And we're fucking sick of it. Jesus. Um, so Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. I can't possibly. You're so right. <laughs> okay, folks. Um, I'm not being held against my will, I swear. The... <laughs> But yeah, now ultimately, if you look at, let's like, say, Roy Scheider in Jaws, he's not someone who reveals his internal depths to other people. He holds all that in. That's what the boomers and the generation before that, the greatest generation, the GI generation did. They just got on with it. They Absolutely. didn't say what their misgivings were. Yep. Gen X were the first ones to wallow in it. Yes. And early, early 60s kind of like, you know, just talking about the more spiritual side of stuff during the hippie movement and I suppose beatniks, they were kind of, there was a, there were, there were certain individuals there, but this was the first time a generation got to kind of moan at each other about their own individual worlds. Yeah, this is, this is the, the first generation of people whose parents may possibly have been high while they were conceived. Yeah. <laughs> we came out with very big pupils, folks. Anyway. So we cut to Martin and Dr. Oatman, played by the wonderful Alan Arkin. It's a small role in the film, but it represents the musings that Martin has gotten up to uh, as he sought out therapy, which is, again, uh, it's a, it began in cinema with things like Woody Allen, uh, and the talking about your problems became a thing that was big in the 90s. Mm -hmm. The type of talk therapy that came almost mm. directly from Freud. And Gen X, uh, at least uh, earlier Gen Xers, were particularly fond of Woody Allen stuff, which was uh, often hesitant and very analytical and sort of self-reflective, uh, which, again, sort of all plays into this one uh, culture of uh, examining yourself in front of people, which can sometimes come off as very rude and overly personal. And in the case of Dr. Oatman, he's fucking terrified of Martin because uh, they've had several sessions, but then Martin told him that he was a professional killer. And ever since then, Oatman has been wanting to end their professional relationship, but he's scared out of his mind that Martin will kill him if that happens. I think everyone overestimates the level of, of casual evil that Martin is capable of. Absolutely. Or just that the film does not show that to us. Yeah. Yeah. And it, but that's the, again, we see the truth of what Martin does reflected back from the people who freak out when they find out the truth. 
And Martin very specifically says he doesn't want to talk about morality as though, in a kind of a dismissive way, as though he has never had any dealings with morality. He does have morality, it just makes him uncomfortable. It makes him uncomfortable to discuss it. He even backtracks in the space of that very short session because he, he opens by saying, I just want to work, but something is, is making that difficult. I'm uneasy, um, I'm, I'm feeling bored. And then Dispassionate. when uh, Oatman tries to turn that back around on him, which is exactly what a therapist is supposed to do, to encourage oh, yeah. you to He's examine a... what you've just said, he says, I don't want to talk about work. You do. That's you what you opened with. with. No, but specifically, he says, I don't want to talk about work because I don't think what a person does for a living specifically reflects who they are. Mm. Because if it does, he's a black hole. But if it doesn't, he can keep telling himself he is not what he does. Yeah. And uh, you talked about uh, uh, Dr. Oatman on the Two Shrinks pod when you guested. Now, I thought I did, but I didn't specifically. I, I Yeah, I guested on the Two Shrinks pod last year. And Hunter is a big fan of this one. I, I believe... told him this the Gross Point Blank episode might be his favourite podcast that we've done. Yeah, they, they have... Ref they've done shrinks on film a couple of times before and I think they must have talked about Oakman in a previous mm. episode because I would have done if they hadn't already. Mm. Yeah, ultimately, he is an example of a good shrink in movies. There really aren't many. Mm. Nudging Martin in a wearied, terrified fashion towards maybe trying to pretend he's... A normal person. Now, I knew I do realise that pretend you're normal was a uh, jail sentence slapped on me as a uh, teenager, but Martin feels alienated and doesn't really want to be and is wondering how he could possibly kind of play it being a human. Yeah. But when people who use it as an attack say, be normal, they, they mean don't for me. mean normal. Yeah. Because you are being normal for you, probably. That's what's prompted them to say that in the first place. Mm. What they mean is, be like everyone else. Because for the for, for a given majority, I, don't, I wouldn't say it's a vast majority anymore, but for a significant majority of the human race, the herd instinct is so powerful that it over rides most other stuff yeah i got invited to my 10-year high school reunion i'm conflicted i mean i don't know if i really want to go it's in detroit you know and i grew up there but i just honestly don't know what i have in common with those people anymore you know with anyone really i mean they'll all have husbands and wives and children and houses and dogs and you know they'll made themselves a part of something and they can talk about what they do and what am i going to say i killed the president of paraguay with a fork how have you been? I'm just thinking it'll be depressing. It'll be depressing. Shouldn't you be taking notes or something? I'm not taking notes, Martin, because I'm not your doctor. Please don't start with that stuff again. Martin, I'm emotionally involved with you. How are you emotionally involved with me? I'm afraid of you. You're afraid of me. And that constitutes an emotional involvement, and it would be unethical for me to work with you under those circumstances. Don't you think maybe you're just upset because I told you what I do for a living, and you got upset, and you're letting it interfere with our dynamic? Whoa. Martin, you didn't tell me what you did for a living. For yes, I did. You didn't tell me what you did for a living for four sessions. Then you told me, and I said, I don't want to work with you. And yet you come back every week at the same time. That's a difficulty for me. On top of that, if you've committed a crime or if you're thinking about committing a crime, I have to tell the authorities. I know the law, okay? But I don't want to be withholding. I'm very serious about this process. And I know where you live. Oh, now see, that wasn't a nice thing to say. That wasn't designed to make me feel good. 
that's a kind of a not too subtle intimidation, and I uh, I get filled with anxiety when you talk about something like that. Come on, I mean, that's. Come on. I was just kidding, all right. The thought never crossed my mind. You did think of it, Martin. You thought of it, and then you said it. And now I'm left with the, with the aftermath of that, thinking I gotta I gotta be creative in a really interesting way now, or Martin's gonna blow my brains out. You're holding me hostage here. That's not right. I just want to work. Okay, there's some issues that I need to work on in my life. I've read your books, your bestsellers on the top 20. They were both ghostwritten, Martin. What, The Annihilation of Death? Yeah. Kill Who, A Warrior's Dilemma? I read it, it was New York Times top 20. Well, I don't, I don't know what to say. Well, what do you say to other patients, you know? I don't know, how does it work? Ask me how I'm feeling. How do you feel? I'm feeling uneasy, man. Um, I'm just dispassionate, I'm bored. I'm, it's hard to stay in a good mood. I've had problems at work, you know? concept execution stuff and just ill at ease. Well, look, Martin, I don't want to suggest anything that might be uncomfortable for you, but you might consider, just consider the possibility that part of your problem, part of the thing that's making you so miserable is the angst over killing a lot of people. Maybe I just put it in the background there. Come on, if I show up at your door, chances are you did something to bring me there, okay? I don't care about that stuff. You don't care about what stuff? You know, morality. Hmm. I don't want to talk about work. Because I don't think necessarily what a person does for a living reflects who he is. So what do we do? We talk about dreams or what's next? What's next? What's the score here? Talk about dreams. We can talk about dreams. See your nickel. Sure. Um, I had another one about Debbie. That girl you're obsessed with? What do you think obsessed is a strong word? Uh, recurring dreams of loss and pain for 10 years featuring the same person. Yeah, maybe it's a bit excessive. Um, I had one where I was uh, that television mechanical rabbit. You know, with the, the, the... The battery bunny. Yeah, I was the bunny. That sounds like a very, very depressed dream. Really? Yes. Why? Martin, it's a terrible dream. It's a depressing dream to dream about that rabbit. It's got no brain. It's got no blood. It's got no anima. It just keeps banging on those meaningless symbols endlessly and going and going and going. Time is up. T time's up already? You really want to do a half a session? Can we just pretend like we have a normal doctor-patient relationship? I'll ask you a piece of advice, you give me an answer. You know, advice, should I go to the reunion? Yes, yes, get out of town. Thank you. Go see some old friends, have some punch, visit with what's her name? Debbie. Debbie, don't kill anybody for a few days. See what it feels like. I'll give it a shot. No, no, don't give it a shot. Don't shoot anything. You heard Let It Whip from the Daz Band? This is Pressure Drop, a song recorded in 1969 by Toots and the Maytels, who were directly name-checked by Debbie. And it was re-recorded by the Specials in 1996 for their album, Today's Specials. Everyone's the reason everyone's so discomforted 
is that they all feel a certain pull towards falling into line and a certain mm. level of, I need to have shown that I have achieved at least this much. Yeah. But also... Be it family, be it career, be it uh, awards, some sense of achievement. Yeah. They have filled their lives with so much of the stuff that they were always told they were supposed to chase that they never give themselves time to look at it and go, is this actually what I want? Now, for all that this is a Gen X film, this is the, the cry of people who were coming into their own in the boomer period, in the, in the 50s and the 60s. That was like peak time for do what everybody says is good and great and will make you successful. Because so much was going right within middle-class suburban white American society that nobody ever really had, or nobody, most people never really had a reason to turn around and look back at it and go, something's wrong with this picture, what is? But it's the, it's the Gen X media that we grew up with that really started to bring that black hole sun sense of hmm. something is fucked in the state of Denmark, we need to figure this shit out. Meanwhile, if you jump forwards a bit, the millennials who hit their mid to late 20s in the 2000s could go back and watch this film and look at the level of achievement that they were being told they had to get to by the 10-year high school reunion. I don't mind telling you folks that around about 2007, I was like, what the fuck have I done? If I'm going back to my high school now, what do I tell them I've done? Absolutely. Arlene being so proud of the fact that she, well, so synthetically proud of the fact that she has three kids by Yes, I do, and three children. Yeah, but... Oh, having three children is tight. Patently <laughs> obvious that this situation is making her miserable, but she has no idea why. Mm. There is there is a, a single person at the reunion. No, never mind. In fact. Oh, look, oh, hold that back. I know who you're talking about. Yeah, I'm holding that back. She's very uh, comfortable. Yeah. So uh, we get a brief glimpse of Hank Azaria and K. Todd Freeman as CIA agents Lardner and McCullers in this. They're almost like the Greek chorus in the film. Mm. Grosser has tipped them off to uh, Martin, like they're looking for... Uh, an Oswald. An Oswald, mm -hmm. and um, Grosser's saying, if you bring in this guy, or just shoot him, then you'll be able to say, look, the CIA are dealing with uh, dangerous agents. Oh, they're NSA. They're NSA, I made that mistake. I wrote CIA initially, but they're NSA. You've never met Martin Blank. You know, girls are born in a mountain. I'm telling you that you never met Martin Blank, okay? No, 17 months ago, I was posting a walk in Lisbon, and he was there. He hasn't been in Lisbon since 1990. You know how I know that? I read the file. Read the file. No, actually, as a matter of fact, I actually talked to him in Bond. You always, you always have to know everybody. Well, I tell you what, why don't I take the weekend off and you kill him, since you two are so close. All right, I'll do that. We'll come back to them later, but they have a great little patter back and forth. And this was around about the time that Hank Azaria was in loads of late 90s movies, being low-key funny the whole way through, even as Egador Spartacus in The Birdcage. So he meets Mrs. K. What's her actual name? It's not Krabappel, even though I did go, ha. Krapowski. The lady with the whole Mary Tyler Moore thing going on. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. That's enough. The perfect back and forth thing between a student meeting his uh, now 10 years older teacher and he's an adult and she's basically the same, just maybe a little bit shorter now. Mm. And it's a it's small talk. It's back and forth thing. There's a lovely little betrayal moment when uh, he says he's going home and she says... Are you in a kind of, oh shit, I know something about this, but I can't tell him now. Mm, yeah. Or it may just be a, an existential, are you? Are you? Hmm. 
Either way, it's a lovely little back and forth thing. Yeah. And you get a bit of a reveal about where Martin came from before he disappeared as well. She said about the, the teacher's pool speculating that he was going to go to Princeton or Harvard or he was clearly a bright, a student. bright yeah. kid. Yeah. Uh, and With all of that potential you people are so fond of yattering on about all the time. <laughs> so when he actually gets home, I'm not going to mention the gaffes at all. Uh, because uh, talking about gaffes in movies to me is boring because it, it's it's not something intentional unless it's really uh, uh, worth focusing on. It's, you know, a stormtrooper banged his helmet. Uh, however, when he gets out of the car, a cigarette drops out from the inside door. He doesn't smoke. I'm assuming John Cusack does, but it drops to the pavement. Mm. He gets out and stands in the middle of the street in the afternoon staring at where his home should be, and it's an ultimate. Because commerce has come in and reduced home to a place of commercial snacking. Yes. Convenience. Martin, in an attempt to go home, has actually found that the home fires are not still burning and have in fact been bulldozed. Yes. Hello, this is Dr. Oatman. If you'd like to leave a message, I will get back to you shortly. Dr. Oatman, please pick up, pick up. It's Martin Blank. I'm, I'm standing where my uh, living room was. And it's not here because my house is gone and it's an ultimart. You can never go home again, Oatman. But I guess you can shop there. Ugh. Pick up! I know you're there, Oatman! He goes to find his mother and she's in a Shady Acres-style nursing home because quite clearly she's lost her marbles. I do love the way she plays it because there's a kind of a whimsy mm. with the way uh, the actress speaks. Yeah. There's a sadness to it mm. uh, as she seems to have forgotten most of the things about Martin and has uh, kind of been absorbed in her new routine and uh, speaks to his father who's been dead for years. Yeah. So there's a there's a really sweet little bit of physicality when uh, Cusack is leaning on a, a, a pillar as she's led away by a nurse. She says, you're, you're a handsome devil. Who, uh, what's your name? Having just spoken to him for two and a half minutes and that is now forgetting that he's her adult son. Mm. Then as she's led away, um, babbling, he just does this little tiny, like, wave of his uh, little finger and, and ring finger at her when she says, bye, Marvin. It's a real goodbye there. It feels like he's not going to come back because then we cut to the uh, graveyard and he's clearly completely missed his father's passing and just pours an entire bottle of scotch onto the gravestone while Joe Strummer just plays guitar quietly and sings in the manner of uh, Shane McGowan from the Pogues. So, I spoke to your father the other day. I imagine that'd be rather difficult. <laughs> no, no. It wasn't. No? No. They told me you have been taking lithium. Yes. Oh, those blabbermouths. <laughs> we had some laughs, haven't we, Martin? Mm -hmm. It's good to see you again. Mom, what happened at the house and all the money I sent? They stole. I don't do money. You know, time allows miracles. Time. And you need time, that's all. Sir, excuse me. It's time for your medication. Oh, Nurse Scott, my best friend. We met. Mmm. Okay. Okay. Oh, God, I do so much here. You're going to be okay, honey. Oh. Okay? Mom. Yes. 
It's the erosion of things that Martin thought he had some form of foundation in. When we're kids, by and large, our home is with our parents. And when we're adults, we kind of journey out into the world and make a sort of home for ourselves. But it's tough to make a home when you're out on your own. The only constant is you. But what Martin means by you can never go home again is that for most of us, that's our parents' house. Houses are transitory, parents are transitory. And as relationships and people fade, so does the idea of home. It's like when I went back to Universal Studios and I was like, this is all completely different. Yeah. Where's Back to the Future? It's gone forever. Yeah. These back-to-back -back scenes really are, they sort of underpin this emotional core of the movie, which is that, that who are you when the people who you've known the longest are gone, mm. whether physically gone, in, as in the case of his father, whether mentally gone in the case of his mother, and the um, his mother is a blank now, his father is a blank, that makes his own past even more blank than it was before. His soul is empty, it's up to him to fill it. Yeah, so he can no longer define himself by his parents, he can no longer define himself by his home, he is rapidly running out of outlines in which to fit his existence. He never mentions his father, ever, which to me suggests that the man was mostly absent and like a lot of uh, men from that generation was prone to just hiding away from his emotions and everything about him. And you could read into that entire bottle of whiskey that he was far more acquainted with the bottle than with his family. And it's notable, I think, that when you piece together how Martin's career progressed from a few things that he says here and there throughout the rest of the film, mm. he left home and joined the military, then worked for the government, and his going into hired professional killer came post his father's death. Mm. Mini Driver as Debbie Newberry, the lightly jaded, I'm going to say lightly jaded because she doesn't pour scorn on everything. She doesn't, know, and I'll She can talk still about find why. enthusiasm here and there. Local radio DJ, dedicated to nostalgia, it would appear, has now gone into overdrive for this weekend. Yeah. Uh, the scene where he confronts Debbie after driving past her window while she's been uh, broadcasting, mm. she's sort of like, is that a it's ghost very I see? It's Warriors, don't you think? Debbie's intro, it's, you get that focus in mm. on her, her mouth talking into the microphone. Lynn Thigpen. Yeah. Yeah, sorry about that. Mini Driver has... She can handle dialogue in the late 90s and early 2000s like almost no other. I love her in this, I love her in Good Will Hunting, I love her in Tarzan. I even saw The Governess, one of her, her first major starring roles, tiny movie nobody saw. Uh, Did you ever see Circle of Friends? I have not yet seen that, because Chris O'Donnell is such an astonishing drag factor. He is, yes. But I will watch that for young Mini Driver. It's, it's an entirely predicated on the fact that she's ugly and fat, which is nonsensical. Ugly, fat <laughs> Mini Driver. <laughs> Anyhow. Uh, when she uh, she describes uh, two young lovers with, and then pulls her radio mic in, 
frightening natural chemistry. And that is precisely what she and Cusack exude, kind of bouncing off each other in, in a kind of a, it's, it's not, I'm just, I'm pleased to see you. There's a, this is why it reminds me of Billy Wilder. There's a spikiness going There's back and forth. Song. There's a, uh, like, these things that we are saying matter, and she's keeping him at rapier's length. Mm. You're still in the penalty box. Though it's clear, if you look at her bedroom, which is a shrine to 1986, she's almost more obsessed with that time scale and him more than he is of her. There is a legitimate reason for that, though, because she says she's only staying there because her apartment... Burned down on Devil's, on Devil's Night. Night. But that means... Her father hasn't changed anything since she moved out. Mm. So when she moved back in, it was all still the same. But it also means that at no point did she go back to her bedroom and go, well, I've got to take these posters down. I'm not living in the past. She's DJing and playing the hits from 1986. It's is She crazy. is, to a degree, living in the past yeah. and has been stuck in this loop ever since he left, which makes it feel awful like... She has no momentum and drive to get out of this place, which she clearly wants to do herself without the help of him. But just the idea that he would leave her behind, which he did on prom night, wearing a $700 prom dress. But specifically, no message, no word of why. Yeah. It left her asked just this this enormous question mark that has never been filled in. Yeah, no indication that the reason he left was not her fault. In fact, it wasn't really anything to do with her. But what she does have that it gives her a major advantage over him is that, it, in a way, the radio show and the, the DJ booth are a symbol for her having access to communication and honesty which he doesn't have, and that means that she's got a self-awareness that he doesn't have. Plus a she, connection to the people of Gross Point, absolutely. who all talk to her by first name. But she is able to recognise her own feelings and explore them in real time, which Martin can't. Mm. He has to bank them and come back to them later. He's not able to speak on the uh, radio interview such as it is. Absolutely. He's like, he, he just, he, he can't communicate, even given the situation where you are supposed to communicate. But what, the again, it's all in the, the physicality and the way the scene is framed. But he's doing the thing that is sort of like the, the given joke when it comes to uh, assassins in a... Um, a public situation, which is he can't sit with his back to the door. He doesn't want the blinds open so that people can't see in. And he's constantly sort of, he's edgy. And oh, he's get, trying to get away around. from windows and looking around the place. It's all, it, it, it appears to be paranoia, but it's backed up by the reality he, he is in fact being stalked there trying to, trying to get by at least four different people. But not only does she notice that he is uncomfortable, picks up on what is making him uncomfortable. She gets up and closes the blind for him. When he moves to her seat so that he can face the door, which if effectively is then him attempting to resolve his own discomfort, she acknowledges that and kind of she nods and she goes, right, okay, is that better? Are you okay now? She is recognizing what makes him feel out of place in this situation and is happy with the steps he takes to try and fix that. It's very much framed as an interview. There are elements of therapy about this particular back and forth. Yeah. Certainly regards to, she is seeking some kind of release of her own pent up anger and frustration at this particular st sticking point in her life. Mm. 
So, um, therapeutic benefits of a radio style interview conversation practice, we wouldn't know anything about that now, would we? Not at all. So, here's another cold cup of coffee from The Clash. Spring of 86. Two young lovers with frightening natural chemistry. A girl sits in a $700 prom dress on the front steps of her house, waiting for the most romantic night of her young life. The boy never shows up. Not until now. So, what's the question? Where have I been? More like what happened, Mr. Black. I don't know. I mean, I, I could venture a guess, but I think it would sound like a rationalization, you know, some sort of a cop-out. I thought coming home, seeing some friends, and I thought maybe, you know, seeing you, of course, would be the most important part of that equation. That didn't, that didn't come out right. Uh, this, this is not like my idea. This whole, whole thing is my therapist's idea, really. Okay. So, you're back, a decade late, and you're on some sort of therapeutic assignment, and you want to sort things out with me. So the question now becomes, do I allow you access to me, or do I call security? I don't think that'd be a good idea. Gross point, I need your help. 555-WGPM. Do you think maybe we could go get a cup of coffee and I could try to explain Come on, Marty. This segues so nicely into my 80s weekend. Should a once broken-hearted girl give a guy a second chance? Let's go to the phones. You're on the air. Hi, Debbie. It's Gail. Oh, hi, Gail. You know, I wouldn't take him back yet. I'd make him jump through some hoops for a while, walk over hot coals, make him beg for it. Harsh. It's very harsh, Gail. Maybe we could discuss this in a more discreet setting. Beg like a, a beggar, you know. Come on. Next caller, you're on the air. Debbie, man, it's Nathaniel. I, I don't hear any real remorse, dude. I mean, like, I don't think I'd let this guy back in your life. And, dude, I'd make him wear that prom dress. Does anybody else have a question for Marty? I do, but he's a shifty one. Put that down. I have a question uh, for Marty. Uh, I have a question for Marty. Next call, you're on the air. Yeah, Debbie, hi. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. I love the show. Uh, so, Martin, what? No yellow ribbons? Didn't anybody miss you? Don't you think you should tell her why you're really in town? Tough guy? Uh, you know what we love? We love tough guys like you. Oh, thanks. That was our own Michigan militia with their latest <laughs> chart topper. Oh, come on, people. Do I give this guy the time of day? Marty, do you have any deeply personal responses you want to share with our listeners? He's shaking his head no and ready. That usually signals the end of the interview. Cross Point, Michigan, I hear you loud and clear. If you love something, set it free. If it comes back to you, it's, well, broken. So while Martin's paranoia is grounded in reality, it does exacerbate his every emotional response, making everything so much sharper for him. Like we said, he doesn't really move among regular humans, and now he's kind of thrust into what Americans would refer to as normalcy. I know you don't like that word, it's normality. I know it is a real word now, it's been accepted, it's in the dictionary, but I just, I don't like the word. <laughs> Your problem is that you're a massive grammar snob. <laughs> And it takes one to know one. Now, there's a Say Anything connection here. Uh, there always has been with this whole movie. I saw Say Anything after this, but it just started to really dawn on me that not so much in the superficial similarities like Jeremy Pivens in both, John Cusack and Joan Cusacker in both. Uh, it's it's the, 
the deeper scenarios. They, they, uh, Say Anything is uh, the uh, second film by Cameron Crowe after... Oh, sorry, the first film debuted by Cameron Crowe. The second is Singles. Uh, and it stars a young, fresh-faced, very pleasant, supportive, decent John Cusack who doesn't want to process, sell... Process anything that's been made or sold. I don't want to sell, sell anything, anything that's, that's been, been made, made or processed. processed. I don't want to make anything that's going to be sold or processed. Yeah. Uh, he he's seeking some measure of truth in his life, and then he hooks up with Ione Sky, Diane Court, a uh, rich girl with a very well uh, successful dad in the shape of John Mahoney, sadly missed, uh, who is kind of ostracised from their high school uh, because she spent her entire time seeking uh, academic perfection and hasn't had time to be a human being all that much. And this. And this uh, film, Say Anything, is kind of about how he pursues her romantically, but he just kind of wants to be there for her. And it ends, after the uh, troubling issues with her dad, uh, with the two of them leaving this place together and going off into the world, and he is happy to play support. And this is what would have happened, potentially, if Martin or Lloyd hadn't left with Diane and had, in fact, just disappeared after their frightening natural chemistry, maybe even not even bothered doing the boombox scene, that iconic piece of cinema. If he, because he didn't boombox her, they didn't have that crucial talk. And that is, of course, because Diane and Debbie are very different women. To Debbie, everything was going swimmingly between the two of them. Diane actively pushed Lloyd away even though she didn't want to. But unlike Lloyd, Martin was sitting on a mountain of unchecked aggression. He took himself away from Debbie. He went off and joined the army, went into business for himself, and now Lloyd is a professional killer. If you remember, folks, have you seen that film? He's really into kickboxing. He even references Benny the Jet Acuna, mm -hmm. who is in this film as Felix Lapoubelle. Yeah, he is indeed. There are key differences between Lloyd Dobler and Martin Blank. Oh, yeah. I don't believe Martin Blank was ever as decent a chap as Lloyd. Yeah. But and I also don't believe that Lloyd could become as detached from humanity as Martin is. Yeah, Martin is That's actually... how good an actor John Cusack is. Yeah, he's, he is detached from humanity by dint of his own mind. Which brings us to Paul Spiricki, who I mentioned earlier, Jeremy Piven. He's kind of what might have happened to Martin had he stayed in Gross Point. He's a successful man in one or two fields, but not other fields. Everyone we're about to speak with or about in the next sort of five, ten minutes of the film is what could have happened if Martin hadn't left. Yeah, he's a real estate dealer and he, he sees young couples uh, who uh, want to start their ideal home. He himself, from the looks of it, is single and kind of embittered about that. He's also very dependent on drugs, uh, recreational cocaine, and, well, we never actually see him doing rails, but when he's at the uh, reunion, he's like, <laughs> do I look cool, to, uh, uh, to Martin, and he's definitely smoking pot in the car. It seems to mostly come out of boredom rather than a fear of inadequacy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I would imagine it's a, a healthy combination of the two. Though he definitely has um, that when he speaks to Jenny Slater's back. Yeah, but I did notice when he first meets Paul and they hug after a fashion, Martin goes in, like puts one arm around him and puts the other hand on his shoulder mm. to just hold him at that distance. Yeah. Even, even the hug with his old friend Paul 
can't be a connection with a human being. He shares a deeper hug kind of... with Bob Gestepolo, which illustrates how far he's come in just a few days. It does, but that's not entirely his choice. <laughs> True, but both were men trying to hug him. Yeah, yeah, indeed. But that's the thing. There is there is a lot of played for comedy sort of moments in this with men reaching out for some kind of connection, yeah. which they which is either rebuffed or deemed inappropriate for the moment. You heard Sharks Can't Sleep by Tracy Bonham. That was, of course, Peter Gabriel with In Your Eyes. And this is The Pixies with Monkey Gone to Heaven, one of the foremost American punk bands, known for their dynamic, loud, quiet, loud shifts and song structures. the uh, um, dream house being shown to this uh, uh, cloyingly sweet young couple, we also meet Terry, who is a security guard, who is pretending to be a cop, who is pretending to be a soldier. And there's that fascinating little back and forth between Martin and he, where he says they were hiring, it was only a two-week course, after vouching that he has the authority to shoot Martin if he so much as looks suspicious on the properties of any of these this gated community's gardens. Yes, indeed. You might talk a little shop? Sure. When are you authorized to use deadly force? Oh, well, you know, of course, you know, taxes provide your basic service, police and whatnot, but our customers need a little bit more than that, you know, so if we find you on the property, you know, we do what we have to do. So, if I just look suspicious on your customer's property under those, you know, heightened circumstances, you have the authority to shoot me? Correct. Wow. All right. All right. How'd <laughs> yeah. you get the gig? Oh, you know, they were hiring. It was only a two-week course. Yeah, it's good. Well, I made it easy. You look good. Yeah, thanks. It's kind of a, wow, America's terrifying moment. Just, like, yeah, illustrating that effectively Terry is that guy who would show you a gun in the middle of a reunion just to show you, look, oh, check this out. I, and it's like, this is a guy who should never be given a gun. And he's been given one by uh, the powers that be and the authority to shoot people. Yeah. And there's a kind of a sobering, horrifying lunacy about Terry's presence there in this really film. There really is. And for me, it, it feels particularly weird because I've lived on gated communities where there are guys at the front with firearms and the authority to shoot anybody if they transgress. They're called military bases. Yeah. Cute couple. I don't think they're real buyers, though. I, I don't know if you're qualified to make that statement. No, Terry. I'm just saying they don't look From like... From 11 people. to 3, I showed the house, Terry. Well, they don't look like people would use the... You know, it's live in the neighborhood. Did you get a call, Terry? Someone oh, no, I um, I was just driving by, and, um, you know, I saw some people milling around the, the lawn. No, there's just no, me. It was just one guy. I was right there. Oh, oh okay. Well, Terry, that's what I thought. I just came by. I, I, I show people houses here, and I appreciate it if I, you don't show up. I know, okay? you know but you think you're coming Listen, around here in the neighborhood unannounced, you know. Did you get a call, Terry? No, but sometimes you, alarm, get a call? you don't know the alarm code. Did you get a call, Terry? No, they go off. And okay, you this know, is the part where you go. You're going to have to go. Listen, the thing is, you know, I'm more part of this neighborhood than you are. Besides that, you know, a lot of times you don't know the alarm codes when you're checking the house, and the alarm goes off. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, sure. This is also about the same time that uh, Jeremy Piven uh, as Paul, when they're driving back, after he drives her, them past uh, Debbie's house, uh, where her father still lives, so to set it up for later, twice later in fact. Take a look at this uh, listing. 
Debbie's house. Yeah. Kind of crept up on you, didn't it? No, you drove us here. Yep. His friend, even while they've only just re-met each other, is attempting some form of emotional manipulation in terms of, you just disappeared, was it to do with her? In a kind of, this, is, this was his way of sort of getting answers. But then while smoking a joint later on in the drive back, he starts this 10 years speech, which I realized after a few years of seeing it is clearly two different takes, one of them even bigger than the other, played back to back with a lot of improvisation the end of the second one, both actors corpse. Corpsing is an industry term meaning to burst out laughing and break character. You'll see it in a lot of bloopers. Which should practically ruin the scene, mm. but it's so natural. It works, it yeah, works it so well the, for the energy the in the car at that connection. moment. And that does make so much more sense in light of what the director said about we filmed three different versions of everything yeah. and then usually ended up going with the more over the top one. We did three takes and the These first were the best was the least over the top. <laughs> You don't want to see what the third was. Yeah. He climbed I, out of the car while it was moving at indeed. that point. So how's the family, man? Oh, you didn't know? Of course you don't know. You know no, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, parents are divorced. They got divorced? Yeah, my dad's shacking up with this woman. She's like 20 years younger than him. She's like a biscuit older than me. It's ugly. My mom's oh. making ceramic nightlights. Takes like the plain shells and How's your sister? Did, she ever, did you ever marry that guy, Kenny? Kenny? Yeah, I mean, did that ever work out? <laughs> Come on, man. He did three years at Joliet. They put one of those bracelets on him. Like a low jack, you know? They know where he is at all times. I think he's at Pizza Hut right now. Let's not go there. No. Yeah. Yeah. So you look good. You seem good. Thank you. You may have, uh... Ten years, man! Ten! Where have you been for ten years? I freaked out. Joined the army. Went into business for myself. I'm a professional killer. Oh, does that? Do you have to do postgraduate work for that, or can you can you jump right in? I'm curious about that. It's, not, it's an open market. Open market. Yeah. That's good. Wow. Ten years, man. Ten. Ten years. Ten years. Ten. Ten years. Ten years. I freaked out. I joined the army. I worked for the government. I went into business with myself. I'm a professional killer. That's what I did. Okay. Well, can I join up? Yes. <laughs> this is In Between Days by the English rock band The Cure, released in July 1985. In the UK, it was their fourth consecutive top 20 hit. In America, it peaked at 99, making it a cult classic. This is also a great example of a running gag throughout the film, which is that Martin is continually trying to tell people the truth about what he does. He, he never lies. When connect. people say, what do you do? He, he says, I'm a says, professional I'm a killer. Professional killer. Except when he's joking with Amy and says that he sells biscuits and gravy all over the set. That's the one when he says he works for, he works for, for Kentucky Fried Chicken. But um, yeah, he tells everybody that he's a professional killer. They assume he's joking mm. and they make a joke. Yeah. And he responds to those jokes honestly. Do you get dental with that? No. no. Can I? Is, is, Can it, I is join? it an open? Yes. Yeah, it's an open market. <laughs> Good for you. It's a growth industry. Yeah. <laughs>
Uh, this is also the same time that Marcelo is juggling ammunition orders and soup recipes. Very similar to how she's ha handling ammunition orders and Martin's 10-year reunion letter at the beginning. The back and forth, like the screaming down the phone one minute at the uh, woman who got the ammunition order wrong, which, by the way, is not good phone patter. No, it's not. You don't achieve things by screaming down the phone no, at people. And, and she didn't learn that from Martin. Yeah. That is not how Martin deals with people, generally. <laughs> but it is also symptomatic of the uh, frustration she's feeling with her friend, who's uh, clearly making some kind of... I think that's her sister. You have to get this thing cooked for me. All I can do is tell you ingredients available to me. I'll just put them in at your behest. Mm. Well, there is... Effectively that. cooking remotely. What what this shows us, though, this, this interaction with Marcella, is that... You put the stone in the, first. The fact that she is flipping, I mean, she's got one on call waiting and she's kind of jumping back and forward between the two. This is the kind of code switching that Martin is having real problems with because he is finding it very difficult to go from the professional killer yeah. uh, self. His professional life and apparently, quote unquote, real life. Yeah, to Martin Blank returning to the place where he grew up. His personal life, which I'm assuming has been very, very limited for a long time. Yeah. Like, he's just retired to a quiet house uh, or apartment or condo, more likely. Yeah, where he doesn't interact with anybody but the cat. Doesn't interact with anybody but the cat. It Probably did. would be different now with the internet mm. or maybe video it's games. Actually, they have the internet in this, though. It's a rudimentary version mm. of it, but they do have it. But the fact that Marcella finds it difficult to do this code switching, she's going backwards and forwards between these two conversations, and she ends up yelling yelling at both of them, mm. kind of just underpins, Martin, it's not just you. Anybody would have difficulty trying to keep these two things compartmentalised. They're too intense yeah. to, to mix together. They're very strong flavours when you start getting emotionally involved with either of them. Yeah. You're taking your time, just being a professional? Something like that. But they got a job to do, I'm going to do it, right? Um, oh, the reason I called, could you find out else is in town and why. I've made two spooks in a pool so far, so if they've double booked the job and or they're going to kill me, you know, I'd like to know about it. That'd be great if you could find that out. Okay, got it. Bye-bye. Amelia? Wait, hold on a second. Pacific Triangle Global. Janice? Yeah, no, where the fuck is it? I ordered three days ago. No, that doesn't work. That's, that's not right. Let me go over it again, all right? Let's see, 3,000 rounds of 9mm subsonic. You had that. I gave that to you on the fucking list. Well, I don't give a goddamn where it is. You get it here now. Amelia? I'm sorry. Yeah, no. No, I'm, it's not going to be a boring soup. It just That's just the base. You put the chicken in, you've got to add other flavors. Carrots and celery are just a base of a soup. So the, uh, ulti have to add other flavors. <laughs> the ultimate that we uh, mentioned uh, earlier becomes the uh, spot of a shootout uh, for between Martin and that kickboxer we mentioned earlier, one of John Cusack's heroes, clearly, uh, Felix Lapoubelle. This guy is a badass. An accomplished amateur with the Basque Nationalists. Few odd jobs with the Algerian Separatists. Went pro with the 
stunning debut aboard an elite Caribbean cruise line. Oh, that's where I know from. He's an asshole. Did loan outs for Lickenbacken. Enjoys uh, Native American art, ballroom dancing, pornography. Yeah, 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 yeah. What is he here for? It's part of that Oregon snafu with that dog, Boudreaux. So you're going to get out of there, right? I mean, that's not right, right? You gotta get out of there, right? You're on a flight tonight, right? Much like most of the gunplay in this movie, this is kind of cartoonish, pew, 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 pew. And this was probably what prompted my father when I showed him this proudly, like, look, this is a really good film that subsists on this razor-sharp script and delivery. He went, this is just desperado. He said that movie with the guy with the rocket launcher in the guitar case meets mall rats. And I thought that is maybe the most reductive way of describing a really fantastic film. Why, the fax machine is just a waffle iron with a phone attached. Correct. <laughs> Desperado meets Mall Rats equals gross point blank. That may have been the time I decided I'm going to talk about these for a fucking living. But yeah, uh, The Ultimate becomes the place of a, a, sh a cartoonish shootout where the intestines of commerce get sprayed all over the inside of this shop. And the boy who's supposed to be uh, presiding over this is so immersed in the arcade game playing he doesn't notice the actual shootout taking place mere feet from him. The arcade game in question is Doom 2. I googled it. All I got were pictures from Gross Point Blank. I think this is a fictitious arcade cabinet they made up just because they needed a game that looked like gunplay that wasn't just viewed from the side. It, it, Doom 2 does not strike me as a game you put quarters into. And it's an insane amount of trouble to go to when in 1996, light gun games like Alien 3, Terminator 2 or House of the Dead, Time Crisis or Virtua Cop were everywhere. This is why Gross Point Blank is one of the uh, a fantastic example of why just slapping a genre on something doesn't always work. It's why I refer to horror as a spice rather than a genre. Genre is something that marketers use to work out how much money they should be making on this budget from this movie pitched at these markets. And it's something that people who want to see something that they've seen before pursue. It doesn't necessarily adequately describe films. Just calling this a black comedy is reductive. Yeah. As uh, Martin's home, previous home, is reduced to a smoking shell, outside, the CIA or NSA agents, Lardner and McCullers, are sitting there watching the place explode after Felix ran in there with two machine pistols, and all they can mutter is, cool. They're not protecting or serving anybody they are like martin at the beginning here to do a very specific job take out martin after he's committed a crime mm -hmm. um blowing up the ultramart is not enough of a crime to pin but on but they him. don't know he did it they didn't see what was going on in there but they will wash their hands of anything that they were, are not specifically there to do. They also didn't know how many other people might have been in the Ultimate when it exploded. No. They are completely emotionally detached. Indeed. Only Martin knows there's no one else in there. Mm. Yeah. Not a lot of protect and serving going on around here, is there? Indeed. What did you do that for? It's not me. You all right? No, I'm not all right. Take it easy. I'm hurt, I'm pissed, gotta find a new job. Mr. Wembley, it happened again! So Martin journeys back to Debbie, takes her to a bar and grill to have a longer conversation with her, 
not on air yes. in a more comfortable environment although he does keep sort of switching around looking over his shoulder and it, it he doesn't seem comfortable but the actual back and forth talking between them is one of my favorite conversations in cinema this whole kind of getting to know you tell me what you've done with yourself over the past 10 years and yet the thing is they're not estranged from each other because their speech patterns lapse into a tennis game it becomes clear how well they work together they start speaking as though no time has passed yeah. and there, there are interactions that come a little bit later where it is apparent that what Debbie is doing is testing him to see if the connection they had when they were teenagers is still there yeah she makes references and um, engages in activities that relate back to when they were 18. When she references them and he catches them, Mini Driver's got this wonderful little smile. Right? Yeah. She's like, "I, you got that, well done. Yeah, you're still you, that's what I'm looking for. Mm. Anne Cusack turns up here as... Um, Amy. Amy, a, uh, a local drunk lady who uh, knew them, well, still knows uh, Debbie, talks to her every day probably. But it ultimately <laughs> illustrates why Debbie and Martin work so well together. They were, they were really getting on very intensely, mm. even though they were both still guarded of each other, especially Debbie, for obvious and entirely understandable reasons. The moment Amy sits down, they can't really talk. Yeah. It has to be all about Amy and, you know, Tim, my husband, and it kind of signals the end of their connection at that stage. Ultimately, they exist in a little circle with each other, and the, it's, it's hard to marshal that when you have other people there, especially other extroverts. Absolutely, they relate to, and this, this comes back to this whole sort of the, the herd instinct that they clearly are not really part of, but that they relate to each other in a way that neither of them really relates to anyone else. But let's not talk about that. What if I come and talk to you? Okay. Put the spotlight on you? Sure. You got married. That's hard to imagine. It's just un uh, unbelievable. No, it's, it's pretty normal, Martin. It happens all the time. It's not like you went away for the weekend. Okay, well, I'm, yeah. Can I ask you a question? I mean, it's too personal. You don't have to answer it, but what happened? I think, I think I married him to get away. Didn't like where he ended up. What was the guy like? Well, he... It doesn't matter. Forget about that question. But uh, same thing happened to me. Yeah, huh? when I joined the army, it's a marriage of sorts. Oh, on prom night. That's psychotic. <laughs> How could you possibly join the army? I just, it's something I felt like I had to do. It's hard to explain. I mean, I know it doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't make any sense. Do you know how much time I spent on, on this masochistic cycle just trying to figure out what I'd done to drive you away? Nothing. Yeah, well, you told me that now. It's a little late. Then I thought you'd been murdered or brainwashed or... At least I hope that's what had happened. Oh, I'm sorry to disappoint you. So, you know, come on, spell. What you been doing the last ten years? Uh, well, you must have had worthwhile experiences you want to tell me about. Bad experiences. You met people? Bad people. <laughs> You're pathetic. Do you know what you need? What? Shakabuku. You want to tell me what that means? It's a swift spiritual kick to the head that alters your reality forever. Oh, that'd be good. I think. <laughs> well, I'll think about it. Really? Yeah. Oh my God! It's Marvin and Debbie. It's me, Amy. Amy. Yes. You're still together. Oh, hey, you were the coolest couple. Whoa, whoa, still whoa. are. Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, you want okay. my drink? No, 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 no God. No, don't worry oh. about 
Debbie, I, I love your show. It's so timeless. Yeah, it does run a little long sometimes. Marvin, mm-hmm. are you here for the reunion? Sure. Where have you been these last 10 years? Yeah, Marv, where you been? You look great. Thanks, I work at Kentucky Fried Chicken. You do not. I do. I sell biscuits and gravy all over the Southland. No. Mm-hmm. You're so funny. He's a funny guy. You know, Tim, my husband. Well, listen, why don't I get you to another drink and you guys can just catch up. Oh, could I have a stoli with three olives and onion? Yeah. Oh, I'll have what she's having. Sure. You're exactly the same. So are you. I am? Mm-hmm. How so? Just like I remembered you. Oh, yeah? Troubled? I'm troubled? Yeah. Well, I got, I got a few problems. Don't you? Sure. Yeah, what'd you do about it? Well, I tried everything, yeah. I went to the nutritionist, the herbalist, the psychiatrist. Really? It's quite a list. Any of it work? I can't tell yet, but you gotta try. You know what I'm saying? It's your duty. Oh, yeah, patriot. Sure, sure. So tell me more about your problems. And I'll tell you about mine, and then we'll solve them tonight. (laughs) Not so fast. You're still in the penalty box. Oh, right, right, right. Well, thanks for coming to see me. So, is there a Mrs. Mysterio? No, but I have a very nice cat. Not the same. Well, you don't know my cat. It's very demanding. It? You don't know if it's a boy or a girl? I respect its privacy. Mm. Are you happy? Kind of. Really? Sort of. We'll talk soon. Okay. This is also where uh, Debbie uh, cites the concept of shokabuku to uh, Martin. And I looked and couldn't find it anywhere else apart from this. This is something that seems very anecdotal and and from a place of uh, genuine personal experience that they've come up with a word within the script for the swift spiritual kick to the head that alters your reality forever. This is something that happens in so many films that I really, really like, that uh, the moment that it happens to Martin later is the moment that I chose to use in one of my favorite music video mashups. It's on YouTube, it's literally called The Reason I Watch Movies. It's under pressure and it's specifically characters at seemingly their worst or maybe their best, but it's when they have to come through to be the versions of themselves that you've been waiting to see them become. And people, you know, it's not just about that there's one in your life, there may be multiple, but there are times when it feels like your whole world turns on this moment Mm. and it will go in one or other direction. And earlier that same year, I'd uh, seen and loved another Cameron Crowe film after uh, his third film, after he directed Say Anything, then Singles, Jerry Maguire, which begins with a moment of shokabuku that entirely takes over Jerry's life and steers him very uncomfortably on a new path he is not ready to navigate on his own. And we will talk about Jerry Maguire at some point. So while we've thought about the nature of the concept of Shokabuku and talked about it hundreds of times on this show now, it's this one time we get to call it what Debbie calls it. And Martin gets his later on. This is Jimmy Reed with The Big Boss Man. Breakfast with Grocer. They're both at maximum tension at this point. I don't know whether Grocer thinks Martin will actually just fold and say he'll join the crummy little guild at this stage. It just, it feels like he's getting more and more cheesed off with the fact that the uh, government agents are not shooting Martin. He just wants, I mean, he wants to do the job and 
uh, and, and get paid for it, the one that he was going to be paid handsomely for, it then got given to Martin. So he wants that, but he also kind of considers Martin to be a stone in his shoe he wants to shake out. And Dan Aykroyd is, is very rarely plays a villain, is really believable as this irritable older guy who possesses a strange kind of avuncular aggressiveness yeah, with he's, Martin. Th- he seems to have a... Less of a father, more of a grumpy uncle. Yeah, he seems a to grunkle, have a if you will. resentment of Martin in that kind of, you think you're such hot shit, but you are not, <laughs> kind of way. Like, Martin's way of looking at the world being different from Grosser's way of looking at the world makes Grosser feel inadequate, less than, um, like for some reason the only way he can feel good about his perspective is if everyone around him shares it. He does have that herd instinct thing going on. Yeah, I mean his whole modus operandi is to try to force all the hitmen in the world into one club. Work less, make more. But specifically, work less, make more, because I don't even know how that works, because you don't get paid well, no, for the jobs you aren't it's, doing. It's the same, it's the principle behind um, unionising. If you have ten people unaffiliated with each other, all available for the same job, then you go with whoever bids the lowest. If they are all working together and they say none of us will accept less than X amount, then you, get, you have to give them X amount. I see. Uh, I'm interested in reading your newsletter. Also, who unionised? Wouldn't you like to know? Probably your mama. There's almost a Jeff Winger and Pierce relationship between the two of them. Like, at one point, Grosser may as well say, don't give me that look like I can't get erections. Grosser also reveals that he's on something called Durazac 15, which is apparently lethal, and he uh, has to ingest it on orders from his neurophysiologist. He talks about it as though he's beyond normal and that they'll be giving it to normal people later on but that he's kind of almost like an experimental monkey and he uses this particular drug to keep him sharp yes as you say regarding the he has to seek kind of a a consensual approvement from everybody by trying to push this on martin then trying to get him to add things to the egg white omelet that he uh, orders just to ultimately it, it illustrates he was going to be a crappy boss no matter what because he would needle whoever didn't do precisely what he wanted them to do at all times he also brings up the boudreaux situation which we don't get to see thankfully but from the sounds of it uh martin was uh, retained to get rid of some pacific northwest no good nick types and they were trying to flush birds from the forest using dynamite. He went after them while they were hunting, so I presume the idea was to shoot them both and make it look like a hunting accident. accident. Uh, But they had borrowed a dog from the person who had hired Martin to do this hit and taken the dog with them in order to um, flush out the game, but they were using dynamite in order to do so. Fucking idiots. This is based on a a Darwin Award, where... (laughs) I think it was actually just an urban legend, much like the urban legend of the uh, high schooler who went off to become a professional killer. But that uh, a bunch of dudes went ice fishing on a lake, but uh, were lazy and were throwing dynamite into a hole in the ice in order to, fl- to, to kill fish so that they could just pick out of the giant 
crater that they made in the ice, but that the dog that they brought with them ran after the thrown and misaimed dynamite that ended up skittering across the ice nowhere near the hole that they'd made and ran it back towards the jeep that they were in. They started shooting at the dog out of terror to try to stop him from getting to their jeep. The dog thinking that they'd gone insane because that's what anim- that's what dogs think when you are suddenly violent to them. It doesn't make any sense, so you- they just think you've gone crazy. Ran under the jeep to try to hide, which blew the jeep and the men and the ice and sadly the dog sky high I'd imagine something like that happened with little Boudreaux one presumes but either way the upshot is that the 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 client the person who'd hired Martin and the owner of the dog blamed Martin for the dog's death and sent and Felix La Poubelle after him to avenge Boudreaux. Yeah. So that's why this ghoul is chasing Martin around the town trying to uh, keep a low profile while still looking like Benny the Jet Acuna, who, by the way, was in uh, uh, Street Fighter, if you remember. Yes. He was Vega's little friend. Yeah. I think he got, like, one line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. <laughs> but if you think about it, Martin clearly didn't want Boudreaux to die and clearly had to bear witness to this fucking farce take place and then felt terrible about it. Who wouldn't feel terrible about not preventing a golden retriever from dying explosively? So it's made him feel and it's upset him and clearly it's part and parcel of this angst he has over killing a lot of people. Boudreaux was never a target. Boudreaux was acting on instinct. I would never hurt an animal. I'm offended at the act. Whoa, 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 chatty Cathy. Clip your string. I don't need to know. But just for the record, here's what I heard. The Marks borrowed your client's prize hunting pup. So bad luck for Boudreaux and bad luck for blank. Poodle pumper. <laughs> Hound hitter. <laughs> Pooch puncher. Well, let's not talk about Boudreaux, huh? What about those two guys in a Caprice classic outside? The word is you turn two governments on me, you turn coat. Me? You. Goji? Yes. On you? Yes. Never. And then as he decides to go to the uh, reunion, which uh, he was still on the fence about until this point. Like, he he figured Debbie manages to bait him in a kind of, well, I will allow you access to me if we go to this reunion together. Effectively bringing him back to the scene of the crime to restage the prom night they were never able to attend. He's lucky she doesn't drag that $700 prom dress out and put it on. I was just about to say, however, she just wears a very pretty trouser suit. And her hair looks really nice. It does. But Martin, on the way to pick her up, also uh, meets with Debbie's disapproving father, also now sadly not with us. Mm. Mitchell Ryan. He was in High Plains Drifter, Lethal Weapon, Magnum Force, Liar Liar, uh, who refers to Martin as, uh, as picturing him in a haze like these hipster, flannel-wearing coffeehouse misanthropes that he's been hearing about in Newsweek. He's talking about friends at that point. He's imagining Martin on Friends, which illustrates that the version of Martin he remembers is not like the version of Martin we're getting here. And he's probably actually quite a bit closer to Lloyd Dobler than I'm giving him credit for. Indeed. Uh, But there's a revealing moment which I never really thought about too much, when uh, Martin asks, after when Martin asks what he's doing, Debbie's father says, "Well, you know me, Martin. The same old sellout, exploiting the oppressed." Sure. Ah, uh, what a piece of work is man! How noble! Ah, oh, fuck it. Let's have a drink and forget the whole damn thing. Exploiting the oppressed, and he does so with kind of a hand wave, as though either Debbie or Martin, most likely Debbie, because otherwise he'd say so with a bit more resentment. Uh, has directed something along those lines at him. 
but also we know contextually that Martin's here in Detroit because a canary decided to sing. This puts Debbie's father in line with Jeffrey Wigand in The Insider, meaning he's whistleblowing on a company doing shady shit, meaning he's actually heroically putting himself in the firing line on a matter of principle, because whatever they're doing is bad enough that the money isn't worth it. Which kind of makes him like a, a decent guy when you think about quite how much he brought down on him. So when he says, what do you do for a living? Professional killer. Oh, good for you. It's a growth industry. He then takes a drink. And I always thought that that was one of those, like, you know, someone just said something weird. I'm going to take a real stiff drink. But his hand is shaking, which illustrates that he's actually a little bit nervous. Not necessarily that he believed Martin, but just the idea of professional killers at that point. It must surely have occurred to him. He is still kind of flabbergasted when people are trying to kill him the next day, but it's, it's there in his head. That's a very neat touch. Or I'm just reading too much into a handshake. Possibly so, but I like that insight. And it does also put a little bit of a, I always knew somebody would come for me. Just didn't know it would be you. Mm. Exploiting the oppressed, now I'm karmically reaping what I have sowed, uh, even though I tried to effectively square that circle by blowing the whistle on these fuckers, whom I am one of the fuckers. You're hearing Faith No More with We Care A Lot, a band that has had over 612 members over the years. I've been in Faith No More. It was like community service in the 90s. You let your mother wash your global hypercolor t-shirt that sentenced you to four weeks in Faith No More. I was third rhythm guitar, triangle, and moral support. This is where most of the pop plays because it's not Debbie doing the authored uh, playlisting. This is where you get Aha and The Bangles and Grandmaster Flash and Mel Mel. You do indeed. Before they get to the reunion though, there is that wonderful moment in the hotel room. This is me breathing? Martin, yeah. Martin is effectively having a panic attack. Oh yeah. And it, it, like you said, he's not 100% sure that he wants to go. There's a, a moment of tension where Debbie, it, he is late for picking Debbie up. And, and Debbie's like, is having this is not happening backs. again on her own. Um, you wanted to restage it, Debbie. Guess what happened? Point of order, it's Martin who asks her and then badgers her a second time when he shows up at her bedroom. She has to come round to accepting him, which is why she feels doubly betrayed when she finds out that his flip remark about being a professional killer was in fact the truth. So you never gave me an answer? I said we talk later. Well, this is later. See, I figure if we go together, we have a much better chance of getting out of there alive. You know, we can partner up, watch for traps, you know, go tandem. I think it'd be a lot safer than if we lone wolfed it. I have to say I'm curious as to what 10 years has done to you. You too. 
Is that is that the same bed? Uh huh. The magic bed. The magic carpet. Wow. Hmm. I'll tell you what. I'll give you an answer if you give me an airplane. Okay. Cool. Ready? Keep your feet low. There. I remember. Oh, it's been ten years. Oh! Fly. Be free. I'm flying. Be free. Emancipation. Are you free? Of course. Okay. What if your dad comes in? You can give him one too. Okay. You can pick me up at seven. <laughs> you can pick me up. <laughs> God, I love her laugh. I love Mini Driver's laugh. Martin is trying to figure out where he fits in all of this and it's staring at himself in the mirror, um, asking himself, who am I in comparison to all of these people? And the, the, the way he delivers, I'm Martin Blank, I'm not married, I don't have any kids and I'd blow your head off if anybody paid me enough. The contempt for himself in that line is incredible. And then he has this conversation with Oatman on the phone where he's he's like, what do I do? How do I get through this? And Oatman is giving him this little breathing exercise. Whilst eating, because he's being phoned at all hours of the night. Absolutely. I'm sure that Hunter and Amy would laugh, cackle at that moment where it's like, <laughs> you should not be talking during your dinner. Well, no. Um, but, but again, he's afraid Martin might cap him. He's doing his best, bless him. <laughs> but it, like, it, uh, the session that he has early on when he says to Martin I, I'm not your doctor anymore I ended this relationship and yet you turn up every week at the same time also these are after hours Oatman isn't booking anybody else in that slot he knows Martin's coming and he's keeping it free for him Her, that's fine yeah. that's a fine point anyway yeah. that's but that's beside the point but yeah so so Oatman's like so take a deep breath and realize this is me breathing now the multitude of ways that this can be interpreted but if you put the emphasis on the me it's about rooting yourself in in yourself i am rooted this in the is, now yeah, i am rooted in the me who is on, on this adventure. adventure but this is me breathing i am me and i am breathing but martin translates it into an action and when he repeats it he's cocking his gun this is me breathing as in this is as natural to me as a breath this is what i do all the goddamn time and then he chooses to put the gun back in the drawer. Yeah, he chooses to effectively to leave the assassin side of himself at home or at the hotel he's staying in because yeah. he can't find home because so that he can venture out as a version of himself that he can build from scratch. Absolutely. The, the me Based on the wants, memories he, he has of the version of, of him who was a teenager. Was before he left, exactly. The me he wants to have a go at being is not the one who carries a pistol around with him all the time. Oh. Although, uh, when he talks to Bob Gestepler, there is a slightly worrisome bent to the words, we don't exist. He means you and I, the conflict between us doesn't exist, but we don't really exist. That is psychopath talk. That is talk of someone who's like, uh, we're both NPCs. To a point, like, but it's also... They're, they're so despairing that it's not just that everyone else in the world doesn't exist and you only exist if you're if you're performing horrendous actions. It's... I don't exist either. Yes, but it is also terminology that makes perfect sense coming from somebody who's in the middle of an existential crisis. Yes. So if Bob had said it, I'd be worried. <laughs> Bob is also going through his own existential crisis. He is indeed. The third single released from Different Light, the 1986 album by The Bangles. Back then, everyone was walking like an Egyptian. 
So at the reunion, we meet Ali and Ansar Joseph, who we've already categorized as having three kids and being very pushy and organizy. She put the yearbook pictures on the name tag so everybody knows who everybody was. It's her job to really crystallize this moment. That's a neat touch. But at the same time, as she finishes the conversation, she kind of freezes in a kind of, I've got nothing else to say to you guys. I actually can't remember much about you, except for you, Debbie, whom I disapprove of. And her face falls when she says, love the show. For the record, by the way, this is the kind of woman who makes Facebook a nightmarish hellscape. Yeah. I, I do still feel sorry for Arlene and Ansel Joseph. So do I. Especially when later in the reunion she's sat on her own, there's no new people coming in, and because of her own self-appointed post of I've got to guard the table of name tags, mm. many of which, including Sydney Feldman, have not been picked up yet. She's just, she's just there, almost purgatorial, though she does get a dance later we, uh, It's before this, actually. We do see her dancing in the hall, mm. and then she goes back out to the table. But yeah, she is obviously, like, she's created this party for everyone to enjoy mm. and she can't really lose herself in it. I'm reminded of Angela from The Office when she was on the party planning committee. Yeah. Uh, Paul, we also meet again Jeremy Piven off his face on cocaine and jabbering the way that Jeremy Piven does. Uh, I always used to really like him but then as it turns out like his horrible character in uh, Entourage is probably a little bit cl too close to the real life Piven. Splendid. But uh, yeah, I, I, I like his foil to Martin at this stage. Like, it feels like the two of them could definitely have been friends. Again, he was uh, briefly in uh, uh, Say Anything hanging out with a bunch of bitter young misogynists. Excellent. Uh, but uh, yeah, he kind of starts a, a one-way fight with a girl named Jenny Slater who uh, whose crime appears to be not noticing him enough. However, after that conversation, Jenny does dance with him for yeah. pretty much the rest of the evening. Mm. There's a little bit of Groundhog Day about this as well. The whole, like, the small town feel to it and the uh, getting to know all of these these people. Like, you can never leave. The, uh, <laughs> all of the people that Phil gets to know in, in Groundhog Day much more intimately than he would have in just a single visit yeah. to Punxsutawney. Mm. Uh, it, it, it feels very human and no one, like, for all of the bravado of I'm doing this, I work with this law firm now from Ken with the pen and... Uh, Nathaniel, who's uh, managing his friends from high school, one of whom, what was the name of one of the wrestlers that... Eckhart. Oh my god. Everyone's kind of projecting their version of, you know, one lady who is in a neck brace, her, like, it's almost like she's cast about for what, how do I define myself to this whole crowd? I got it. I will tell them about my near-death experience because they'll be asking about the ne neck brace anyway, which was pretty significant to me, and they're all sort of trying their best to not fall apart at that stage. Which is, again, it feels like a very human gathering. Absolutely. Everybody is projecting their own concept of success and trying desperately to, um, to make that mean something, even though the degree to which it means something to them has a big old question mark over it. I peaked and I'm kidding myself. 
Uh, and then we get Martin's moment of actual shokabuku. This is where he meets a lady who seems to be very, not like pushing her child on people, like, I've had a baby, praise me, but in a not kind of... Not at all, or like the opposite, well, not the opposite, but she, this is Tracy. Yeah, she's very understated and, and pleasant and warm. And, and she, she has... was obviously friends with Martin. He walks past and she calls him over, yeah. so she recognises him. But she's very... Gentle. She's about the most chill person here. Mm. She's calm, she's happy. The fact that she's got a, uh, a relatively new baby, I think Debbie comments at one point that the last time she saw him, he was it was before he was born, and that they are now in their late 20s, very late 20s, so she has waited for the right time for her to move on to parenthood and for her I think Martin actually says to her it's it's not like people say is it it's, it's um, you know you, you go for the kids thing and it, it does something and she's like no 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 it's not like that at all it's it's it this is brilliant it's made everything better the, the marriage better I have is is you know and it, everything about what she says it's not in a forced way mm. she's just very naturally expressing that the way she's carried her life out works really well for her. I think it, it it's notable that Martin at this point meets someone incredibly genuine who's not having to over-exaggerate yeah. their achievements. Yeah. Uh, and very specifically, when he's handed Robbie, uh, the music playing is under pressure by Queen and David Bowie, which, from the sounds of it, the actual recording of this single was quite fraught, and they were both, they, the Queen were tense with Bowie, Bowie was tense with Queen, they didn't particularly love it. And it took place over a matter of a few days in some sort of Swiss chalet-style recording studio. It's my favourite song of all time. I want it played at my funeral. I can't sing it in rock band. I can start either as Freddie or as uh, Bowie, but I just, around about the middle, I can't carry on. It just overwhelms me. I could do a whole show on how magnificent Under Pressure is, but ultimately it comes down to it's, it's a, a song about looking outside of yourself and rather than wallowing in, in self-pity, noticing other people. There's a, a, a note about looking after the poor, looking after the people who can't look after themselves and those on the absolute bottom rung, and in turn recognising the pressure that everybody else is going through which speaks to the element of humanity throughout this film. At this point, Martin is handed cheerful, fragile little Robbie by this gentle maternal figure who clearly loves her child but trusts him. Trusts him in the hands of a man who does nothing but kill. And there are so many movies like Three Men and a Baby where it's like, oh, the guy with the cute baby, and th th look at the guy with the cute baby. Guys don't know how to deal with babies. He these things up by their feet, right? Yeah. And, you know, the, the dads don't know how to change nappies, and they're like, oh, no, it's peeing everywhere. And this they seems like Hollywood can't get enough of that story. This is way more than that. Martin's just staring at this little cute baby, but he's finding a plateau in his own existential crisis, which is that he's been saying for all of these years, it's not me, it's not me. The guy uh, that he bungled the Miami job said, whatever it is that I'm doing that you don't like, I'll stop doing it. And Martin says, it's not me, with a sad cock of his head in a kind of, I'm not pulling the trigger here, these are the people who hired me to kill you, I'm just 
facilitating the gun's presence in the room. Click, and you're dead now. Ultimately, he's told himself repeatedly, I'm not responsible for who I kill, but you can't turn down the Greenpeace boat because you say you have scruples, but choose the Miami job and say that it's not you doing that choosing. This whole week's worth of everything crashing down on him is Martin realizing he can't keep absolving himself of responsibility. It is him. He, you know, he doesn't want to think that what a person does for a, li a living necessarily reflects who they are. But in this case, he's worried that if he takes away the assassin thing, there'll be nothing left. So when he looks at Robbie, it, not so much he realizes, he's been realizing for a long time. He can no longer evade the simple fact that he has killed bad people for sure, but he's also killed good people that bad people want him to kill, and he's also just killed people who were neither really good nor bad, and in fact, his whole kind of hand-waving morality goes out the window when it comes down to the fact that they were all people, and they all began life as someone like Robbie. Completely oblivious, defenseless, and trusting. And he stares at this baby, baby stares at him, and by the end of this scene, he has completely lost his taste and has decided not to kill anyone ever again. And only has to now, afterwards, because he is forced to. It's an astonishing scene. Over this time, he's won enough points of uh, normality and relaxedness with Debbie that she's able to recognize enough of the version of him she remembers in this guy who's dressed, in the words of Mrs. K, like a mortician. It's actually very, very, very dark green on his tie. It's almost like his version of the verdant green of Gross Point. This, uh, it, also, if you consider, Gross Point, Michigan is so upmarket relative to the residents of Flint, Michigan, who can't even drink their own water. They're in this little oasis of affluence, right next to absolute poverty. The whole of Gross Point needs to listen very carefully to Under Pressure. Debbie's father's house in particular is huge. Hmm. Huge. You may have now decided you have a distaste for your employers, Mr. Newberry, but it bought you that house. Yeah, it's a house bought on blood, clearly. Uh, but yeah, at this stage, Martin has convinced Debbie to give it another go, and she uh, she apologizes for saying that she thought that he was broken while she was kind of riffing poetry on the spot. But ultimately, this is important to her. She doesn't want to feel broken either. She wants to be able to repair this and to be able to come back, even if it doesn't necessarily mean hitching her horse to Martin's post for the rest of their lives. It's a case of, okay, so if you can come back to this reunion and feel like you can face all these people, then maybe I can move on from this as well. And it's almost like more importance is attached to it by virtue of how fucking weird and creepy Martin has been since the moment he got back in Gross Point. At least in Debbie's eyes, he's acting skittish and paranoid and strange and uh, shifty and guilty and his professional killer line, she, like everyone else, did not take to be anything remotely real. In her words, people lie about the awful things they do. People they don't do joke them. joke about the awful things people they do. People joke. 
they don't do them. It's absurd. But yeah, he gets even more points by being able to deal with Bob Bistepolo, who, from the sounds of it, has become very popular uh, in the town for having a dealership that at least sold one BMW to Paul. He's also obnoxious and drunk and a fool as he turns up at the party. Like, he, he couldn't face them sober, so he got tanked first. And then... And as Martin points out when Paul says he bought a Beamer, you bought a BMW in Michigan? Yeah, nobody buys American anymore. Yeah. The uh, obviously referencing General Motors that would continue to treat Detroit with absolute contempt. But Bob ultimately uh, decides to take out his aggression on uh, Martin only to find someone who speaks plainly with him. But at the same time, he feels like he can open up. Again, it's that Generation X uh, sense of unburdening your anxieties upon each other. Which is, I love this because ultimately it humanizes bullies. I love it whenever Flash Thompson gets to do something that's actually not just being a complete prick. I like that, you know, that we all hate bullies, but would it not be possible to get the ones who are not irredeemable to just take a step back from being so shitty and put their humanity out on the table, which in this case Bob tr attempts to do in poetry. Yeah, and I love the way Martin kind of reaches out to him with a reversal of his usual self-defense cry of it's not me. Mm. Who do you want to hit, man? It's, it's not, not me. me. Yeah. Hi, Bob. Debbie Newberry, huh? You gonna hit that shit again? Fine, Bob, how are you? <laughs> Real smart. Come on. Let's see how smart you are with my foot up your ass. Do you really believe that there's some stored up conflict that exists between us? There is no us. We don't exist. So who do you want to hit, man? It's not me. And I hadn't noticed this before, but when you listen, it sounds like Martin is trying to avoid conflict at all costs. It sounds like he's at the other side of the hallway. He is nose to nose with Bob, unafraid to fight him, knowing he can take him, but telling him they don't have to fight, which gives Bob some close proximity to somebody who's neither being aggressive nor dismissive. And it is noteworthy that Debbie is able to see this exchange going on, unbeknownst to Martin. She makes further judgments on him based on his handling of it. She thinks she has somebody well-adjusted. What do you want to do here, man? I don't know what that is. These are my words. It's a poem? See, that's the problem. Express yourself, Bob. Go for it. When I feel quiet. When I feel blue. You know, I think that is terrific. What you have right there, really, I like that. Just, I wouldn't sell just, the I wouldn't sell the dealership or anything, but I'm telling you, it's intense. It's more. Okay, what, do you mind just skip to the end? To the very end. For a while. That's good, man. For a while. That's excellent. You want to do some blow? No, I don't. There you go. I missed you. Okay, I missed you too. And he and uh, Debbie have a uh, 
a sweaty, furtive uh, sexual encounter in the nurse's station, but it's very intimate and it's very kind of recapturing the passion of their teenage years, which clearly both of them have been thinking about for a long time. But she leaves him alone with a smile in a kind of, I think we've got this together. We're just about able to rebuild, I think maybe. We've got the foundation here. Let's see what happens with this. Leaves him alone. And that's when his professional life comes slamming back into him as Felix attacks. Because Felix had no particular interest in waiting for uh, Martin to perform a specific job, uh, like Grocer and uh, the two special services operatives did. He's there to avenge Boudreaux. The fight in the hall, I've seen uh, f uh, fighters and analysts uh, look at this one bit. I don't remember who said it, but that it's a really neat, not entirely realistic fight, but they take little feints at each other and it's, it's very sort of close up and sweaty and it's a lot less showy than uh, you, know, you get in, in your average uh, marsh, you know, choreographed fight scene in something like uh, that in that era, a Van Damme film like Hard Target. Mm. And obviously, since uh, Benny the Jet was there to do the coordination, Cusack got to have one of his heroes help teach him to uh, apply those fighting skills, and then allow him to stab his mentor in the neck with a pen, <laughs> a lawyer's pen, mightier than the gun. Nice. Here in the bathroom. Listening to the English beat, or as they're known in England, the beat. But then, obviously, with perfect, terrible timing, Debbie comes in, staggers into to witness Martin just, and specifically, it's just after Robbie, so he didn't want to do this. Is now on his knees, blood all over him, bloodied pen in one hand, corpse in front of him. And he says pathetically to her, it's not me, as she runs away screaming, completely understandably. Paul, to his credit, is almost entirely unquestioning. He asks several questions, none of which Blank really answers. In, in the end being, what do you do for a living? And Martin just carries on walking and it becomes apparent that he didn't lie to or exaggerate about his actual job. There's a kind of a neatness in clearing Felix's body away because they managed to clear most of the blood as well and without the body, it's like the murder didn't happen and then the this man who barely exists gets thrown in the furnace again, like a version of Martin that he doesn't really want to be out there in the world but anymore. This is a man who isn't there. Burning Felix in the furnace is a blending of Martin's professional resourcefulness, knowing what to do and how to dispose a body, and his knowledge of the terrain. This is his school. That's yeah. how he knows there's a furnace in the basement. It's like, yeah, Fred Krueger used to live down there. Well, This is the, the repercussion echo of the Boudreaux job and how bungled that was. On like, it, it, It's possible that Martin might have been able to save Boudreaux, but it, it kind of doesn't matter because eventually, if... An assassin shows up at Martin's door. In his own words, chances are he did something to bring him there. Which means eventually his professional life was going to catch up with him one way or another. And this is the two parts of himself that he's been trying to keep separated. And it's like mixing acids and bases or pop rocks and coke. It just explodes. Or oil on fire and water. 
because the assassins he associates with don't really see people as people, and the people that he even vaguely mentions his assassin career to, especially Debbie, see that as utterly inhuman, and this is not something people are or do. Kind of elevating, or not so much even elevating, as shunting the business of being a professional killer sideways out of the locus of humanity. So when she screams at him, when he's trying to uh, explain to her that the who he kills, why that's very complicated, he's evasive, almost wormy at that point. And there's that delivery on, you're a psychopath, like she's terrified of him at that point, and he, he allows his eyes to get super wide and goes, no, 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 a psychopath kills for no reason. I kill for money, it's a job. That didn't sound right. He looks as we see him through Debbie's eyes. He looks like someone who is the angel of death. And she's so disappointed in him and herself, and she's overwhelmed with disgust and fear, and she can't process this entirely understandably. But I love that she takes a hard line on this rather than simply shutting herself off from the death, the murder. Because ultimately, what she wants and what he wants run in tandem. Yeah. It, it's too late for him to say, I can't do this, I don't want to do this anymore, because to her, he's already done it. It has to become incredibly personal, like it does in the final scene, in a scenario wherein this terrible person is in fact the only terrible person who can keep your father and you alive, because other far more terrible people are coming to kill him. There is that. However, this scene is the antithesis of to be angry is to be human. Yes. Yes, it fucking is. Padme should have done precisely this. There's certain things that we don't do in you a civilized society. You just don't society. do, Anakin! We don't slaughter Tuscan raiders. <laughs> and the women and the children. And you know that thing about you hate them? Yeah. It was almost an insurance trap that uh, uh, Lucas wrote Padme into everything about logic should dictate and her profession should compel her to say, no, I don't want anything to do with this guy. Uh, I already didn't, but this has absolutely cemented and solidified that not only is this guy massively screwed up, the Jedi Order are in serious trouble and I need to draw more attention to this. Instead, her brain kind of softens and she goes, no, 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 this is what I want for the rest of my soon to be very short life. And yeah, to Debbie's credit, she says, you don't get to have me, don't you get it? In a kind of a, I'm going off to be with humans, you stay here in the shadows, you monster. And as Martin's dumb fucking luck would have it, the hit that he was sent to Detroit for is in fact Debbie's father, which Grocer's now trying to execute. So it's one of those Sunday morning things. It's a kind of, it is not the place or the time for a big shootout finale. Like, most of, like, Debbie and her father have no idea the shootout is going to be occurring. They definitely don't, wouldn't want it to be in their house, but that's where it comes to. Yeah. What the hell? Shooting people on a Sunday morning. <laughs> <laughs> At least let me have breakfast first. <laughs> But yeah, it, it takes place in, in an area of domesticity and, and one of those many, many affluent homes of Gross Point where 
all of the people live out their pampered, well-to-do lives and try to shut out from the outside world the horror that exists just across the way uh, in, say, Flint again. And the beauty and stark genius of this scenario is that ultimately it is a conversation where Martin is bearing his soul to Debbie, who doesn't really get to talk all that much because they're being shot at and she's lost for words. She's totally bewildered by the reality of this particular profession slamming into their life. But specifically, they're not here for Martin. If they were here for Martin, she'd be screaming at him that she, he brought this down on them. The fact that they're here for her father knocks her for six. Yeah. It, it causes her to have to reframe the whole situation because the point is that whether Martin was there or not, this would have come into her life. Yeah. And the fact that because Martin's there, he manages to save both of them, allows her to reach a new kind of catharsis whereby she is able to square away that this is a part of, like I say, the, of, of Martin's life that he in fact wants to leave behind and to listen to him just on that front. But there's a kind of a, the way that they, they're driving, as they're driving away, he's still ever so slightly in the penalty box. She hasn't given herself over fully to him and she shouldn't. They should always have that measure of you have to be honest with me about this, yeah. and I have the power to say no yeah. on this. Well, it's almost like the 10-year the gap that they've been apart has been not removed exactly, but they've kind of, they've skipped over it, but they haven't replaced it with anything. They're picking up where they left off, sort of, that doesn't mean that they've had 10 years of interaction to build a relationship on. Mm. They're starting where they were at 18. Yeah. Which, again, is it, it's appropriate to show that Debbie has... She got married, she tried to move on and have some, some sort of life that she was observing in everyone else around her. It didn't work out. She didn't like where she ended up, in her own words. Mm. Her apartment burned down on Devil's Night. She returned to her teenage bedroom. Did Tyler Durden burn down her apartment on Devil's Night? Look, the refrigerator exploded, that's all we know. Okay. Do you want the crow? Because that's how you get the crow. <laughs> but the, yeah, this is the, for Martin, this is the collision of the two sides of his life that he's been dreading because it puts Debbie in absolutely direct firing line of this. And I feel like this film goes neatly next to Mr. and Mrs. Smith in terms of yes. the dump. Shootouts in the kitchen. Shootouts in the kitchen, but. <laughs> the, the, the two go together in terms of they have this side of their life, they have this side of their life, but they're balancing this so well for so long that they're both unaware of that alternate life for each other. Yeah. They, uh, in fact, I would say along with the uh, first and original John Wick, they are using the world of um, shady underworld assassins mm. as a metaphor for the shit we have to deal with in everyday yeah. life. And although this doesn't necessarily win him enough points for him not to feel like a, a very creepy guy, Martin very specifically lays down in his final uh, soliloquy to Debbie. I know soliloquy is supposed to be to, to the audience, but ultimately it's a one-man this is his boombox moment. Mm. And uh, rather than Peter Gabriel saying it for him, he, he very specifically says that on prom night, he realized he wanted to kill someone. So since he loved her so much, he took that away from her. Effectively, 
We've seen this happen repeatedly with superheroes. I'm Spider-Man, and that can't hurt you. I need to be elsewhere for this. So his taking himself away was a recognition of this side of himself that needed to be uh, dealt with. He dealt with it a long time ago, and then it's has been in a holding pattern ever since. Time came for him to move on, but he hasn't been able to let go of it. My God, you're right. And he even, in, in the attempt to try to move on from it, He's terrorised poor Dr. Oatman, and he shuts that part of himself off in a kind of, I'm just going round in circles with you. I'm going, you know, I'm setting you free. And I know, like, Oatman is bashing the fo answer phone to make him stop um, so that he can cut this guy off. But ultimately, he doesn't bear Oatman any ill will as much as Oatman's uh, terror might have him believe that. But again, th that's not at a point when Martin's like, I'm going to just make a new life for myself that's when he really hits rock bottom and decides he can't really heal from He's this and that he is everything. just going around in circles yeah. so where it not f like, that's when he goes back on his old habits mm -hmm. he d he picks up the red dossier which is the same color as the sweatshirt for the dad as you noted uh, and he's just gonna go and do that thing. He may be hoping, I'll just get this friggin' Detroit job done, then all the obligation is finished, and myself and Marcella can retire. We have enough funds between us. But the fact that that pushes him back into Debbie's life allows him to square this away and also to give her the choice. Yeah. She, he's not forcing himself on her. He's just saying, let me give you a little bit more. Hold on a second. Let me give you a bit more perspective on this, and then you decide if this is the kind of person that you want to spend any time with, let alone, again, the rest of your life. Yeah, and also it provides, the, the fact that this is Debbie's father in the dossier provides him with an opportunity to set his own purpose, mm. to go from being the assassin to being a protector. Yeah. But again, the way uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith ends, they're kind of on the run, but you feel like it's going to be okay. And at the end of Gross Point Blank, they have not left all of Martin's bad shit behind, but Debbie has at least accepted enough about him to come with him specifically to leave town. Get the hell out of town is her specific Absolutely. final words. In particular, and this is, this is something that I think is really, really key in any relationship having an even vague chance of being successful everything is now out on the table yeah he is not hiding anything from her anymore whatever does come around the corner and smack him up sharp she will be aware i mean not that i'm saying that she will have expected it because of course she won't she she doesn't live the life he has she doesn't think the way he thinks but she will at least know the reasons for it coming round the corner and smacking them up sharp. It's not going to completely pull the rug out from underneath her. Meanwhile, there but by the grace of his own decisions and his own scruples goes Martin. Grocer has no intention of, of quitting this business, even though he's got at least 10 years seniority. And is still pushing this fucking union in the middle of the fight, even though it probably seems like just a diversionary tactic at, at that this stage. stage yeah. Though I do think it's neat that Martin kills him with a TV. Now, when we left the cinema the first time around, um, I was with Paul and Tony and our friend, who will remain nameless, and we were all just kind of reeling with, wow, that was really good, what a script. 
we turned to our, our, our friend and said, what did you like about it? And he said, I like the bit where he got the TV on his head. We kind of ribbed each other about that particular line for many, many years as like the most superficial reading of like, you know, it's a, it's a fun bit, TV on head, he he he. But at the same time, our friend did pick up on a little bit of subtext there insofar as this is a generation who were effectively destroyed by drugs and TV. And Grosser getting this thing, it has a paralyzing effect and electrocutes him and the fact that it's just so big and heavy and the weight of it crushes Dan Aykroyd down. He is effectively felled by, in Aykroyd's case, the very thing that made his career Saturday Night Live's comedy TV. Now that's a big reach, folks. I don't know whether that was uh, intentional or not, but it does, it does feel like it wasn't even the first time that parallel was made that year. Scream does it as well. It's also worth noting that this friend who liked the bit where he got the TV on his head, of mine, was one of my oldest friends. I haven't spoken to him in, oh, decades. But he was a sweet, sweet guy, and I spent my very young childhood in his constant company. I miss him. School of Movies is funded by Patreon. Our top clients get access to a exclusive named list. Thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandro Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Datchler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finvar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Jorn Clawson, Joe Gluck, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu Hellas Hayo, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skills Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. It's the distractions of this union. Also, the, C- the uh, government agents turn up and are fucking useless and get killed by both the assassins, having accomplished nothing and protected nobody because their priorities are all out of goose. But in his zeal to just murder, Grosser overlooks the fact that uh, Martin has more clarity than him. Oh, I just got an email. Uh, it says, you're reaching. Okay. <laughs> Either way, it's a very satisfying ending. And again, I can imagine a version of this that ends with Martin bleeding out and he and Debbie talking and it being kind of a sobering, sad end to a a, a dry black comedy. But I like the fact that recognizing that you've done terrible shit, but that you can make amends for it and that you can move on and live on and, and do other things. And there's a lot of weight attached as well to getting out of... Uh, ruts and cycles that you've been stuck in. In Debbie's case, the cycle has been to do with Gross Point, Michigan. So her leaving with him is finally repairing that break that happened 10 years ago. In Martin's case, it's just putting the gun down and feeling confident that he never wants to pick it up again, unless some fucker who gets younger every year comes running at him from a nearby uh, suburb. So, this continues to be one of my favourite films ever. 
one of our favourite films ever, and one that watching it with Sharon just gives me a warm glow because I know she's just as engaged with it as I am on every possible level. This has been an absolute pleasure to talk about. It has been an incredibly long time in the making. Thank you, Greg, for not so much giving me the opportunity, but not allowing me to avoid it anymore. <laughs> this is the Detroit job, if you will. Would you describe Greg's position on this as inflexible? Intractable, Sharon. <laughs> I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And this is WGPMFM Radio Free Newberry, Gross Point, Michigan. Winding down our all vinyl reunion weekend, Point High Class of 86. Some people say forgive and forget. Yeah, I don't know. I say forget about forgiving, just accept. And get the hell out of town. <laughs> when I'm a walking, I strut my stuff, and I'm so strung out. I'm high as a kite, I just might stop to check you out. Let me go on, like I blister in the sun. Let me go on. Big hands, I know you're the one. Stop and I'm so strung out. I'm high as a kite. I just might stop to check you out. Body and beats. I stain my sheets. I don't even know why. My girlfriend, she's at the end. She is starting to cry. When I'm walking, strung up. Stop and I'm so strung out. I'm high as a kite. I just might stop to check you out. Let me go on.
There's no supper tonight A lot of people won't get no justice tonight and The battle is getting hard In this Irish People won't get no justice tonight Remember to kick it off No one will guide you on
This is the end.